0: Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 17. Mister and Missus John Knightley were not detained long at Hartfield. THE WEATHER SOON IMPROVED ENOUGH FOR THOSE TO MOVE WHO MUST MOVE, AND MR. WOODHOUSE HAVING, AS USUAL, TRIED TO PERSUADE HIS DAUGHTER TO STAY BEHIND WITH ALL HER CHILDREN, WAS OBLIGED TO SEE THE WHOLE PARTY SET OFF, AND RETURN TO HIS LAMENTATIONS OVER THE DESTINY OF POOR ISABELLA, WHICH POOR ISABELLA, PASSING HER LIFE WITH THOSE SHE DOTED ON, FULL OF THEIR MERITS, BLIND TO THEIR FAULTS, AND ALWAYS INNOCENTLY BUSY, MIGHT HAVE BEEN A MODEL OF RIGHT FEMININE HAPPINESS the evening of the very day on which they went brought a note from mr elton to mr woodhouse a long civil ceremonious note to say with mr elton's best compliments that he was proposing to leave highbury the following morning in his way to bath where in compliance with the pressing entreaties of some friends he had engaged to spend a few weeks and very much regretted the impossibility he was under from various circumstances of weather and business of taking a personal leave of Mr. Woodhouse, of whose friendly civilities he should ever retain a grateful sense, and had Mr. Woodhouse any commands, should be happy to attend to them. Emma was most agreeably surprised. Mr. Elton's absence just at this time was the very thing to be desired. She admired him for contriving it, though not able to give him much credit for the manner in which it was announced. Resentment could not have been more plainly spoken than in a civility to her father, from which she was so pointedly excluded. She had not even a share in his opening compliments. Her name was not mentioned. And there was so striking a change in all this, and such an ill-judged solemnity of leave-taking in his graceful acknowledgments, as she thought at first could not escape her father's suspicion. It did, however— her father was quite taken up with the surprise of so sudden a journey, and his fears that Mr. Elton might never get safely to the end of it, and saw nothing extraordinary in his language. It was a very useful note, for it supplied them with fresh matter for thought and conversation during the rest of their lonely evening. Mr. Woodhouse talked over his alarms, and Emma was in spirits to persuade them away with all her usual promptitude. She now resolved to keep Harriet no longer in the dark. She had reason to believe her nearly recovered from her cold, and it was desirable that she should have as much time as possible for getting the better of her other complaint before the gentleman's return. She went to Mrs. Goddard's accordingly the very next day to undergo the necessary penance of communication, and a severe one it was. She had to destroy all the hopes which she had been so industriously feeding, TO APPEAR IN THE UNGRACIOUS CHARACTER OF THE ONE PREFERRED, AND ACKNOWLEDGE HERSELF GROSSLY MISTAKEN AND MISJUDGING IN ALL HER IDEAS ON ONE SUBJECT, ALL HER OBSERVATIONS, ALL HER CONVICTIONS, ALL HER PROPHECIES, FOR THE LAST SIX WEEKS. THE CONFESSION COMPLETELY RENEWED HER FIRST SHAME, AND THE SIGHT OF HARRIET'S TEARS MADE HER THINK THAT SHE SHOULD NEVER BE IN CHARITY WITH HERSELF AGAIN. Harriet bore the intelligence very well, blaming nobody, and in every thing testifying such an ingenuousness of disposition and lowly opinion of herself, as must appear with particular advantage at that moment to her friend. Emma was in the humour to value simplicity and modesty to the utmost, and all that was amiable, all that ought to be attaching, seemed on Harriet's side, not her own. Harriet did not consider herself as having anything to complain of. The affection of such a man as Mr. Elton would have been too great a distinction. She could never have deserved him. And nobody but so partial and kind a friend as Miss Woodhouse would have thought it possible. Her tears fell abundantly. But her grief was so truly artless that no dignity could have made it more respectable in Emma's eyes and she listened to her and tried to console her with all her heart and understanding. Really, for the time convinced that Harriet was the superior creature of the two, and that to resemble her would be more for her own welfare and happiness than all that genius or intelligence could do. It was rather too late in the day to set about being simple-minded and ignorant, but she left her with every previous resolution confirmed of being humble and discreet." and repressing imagination all the rest of her life. Her second duty now, inferior only to her father's claims, was to promote Harriet's comfort, and endeavour to prove her own affection in some better method than by match-making. She got her to Hartfield, and showed her the most unvarying kindness, striving to occupy and amuse her, and by books and conversation, to drive Mr. Elton from her thoughts." Time, she knew, must be allowed for this being thoroughly done; and she could suppose herself but an indifferent judge of such matters in general, and very inadequate to sympathise in an attachment to mr Elton in particular. But it seemed to her reasonable that at Harriet's age, and with the entire extinction of all hope, such a progress might be made towards a state of composure by the time of mr Elton's return, as to allow them all to meet again in the common routine of acquaintance without any danger of betraying sentiments or increasing them harriet did think him all perfection and maintained the non-existence of anybody equal to him in person or goodness and did in truth prove herself more resolutely in love than emma had foreseen but yet it appeared to her so natural, so inevitable, to strive against an inclination of that sort unrequited, that she could not comprehend its continuing very long in equal force. If Mr. Elton, on his return, made his own indifference as evident and indubitable as she could not doubt he would anxiously do, she could not imagine Harriet's persisting to place her happiness in the sight or the recollection of him. Their being fixed, so absolutely fixed in the same place, was bad for each, for all three. Not one of them had the power of removal, or of effecting any material change of society. They must encounter each other, and make the best of it. Harriet was rather unfortunate in the tone of her companions at Mrs. Goddard's. Mr. Alton being the adoration of all the teachers and great girls in the school, and it must be at Hartfield only that she could have any chance of hearing him spoken of with cooling moderation or repellent truth. Where the wound had been given, there must be the cure found, if anywhere, and Emma felt that till she saw her in the way of cure, there could be no true peace for herself. End of Chapter 17 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty April 2009. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 18. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 18. Mr. Frank Churchill did not come. When the time proposed drew near, Mrs. Weston's fears were justified in the arrival of a letter of excuse. For the present he could not be spared, to his very great mortification and regret, but still he looked forward with the hope of coming to Randalls at no distant period. "'Mrs. Weston was exceedingly disappointed—much more disappointed, in fact, than her husband, though her dependence on seeing the young man had been so much more sober. But a sanguine temper, though for ever expecting more good than occurs, does not always pay for its hopes by any proportionate depression. It soon flies over the present failure, and begins to hope again. For half an hour Mr. Weston was surprised and sorry.' But then he began to perceive that Frank's coming two or three months later would be a much better plan, better time of year, better weather, and that he would be able without any doubt to stay considerably longer with them than if he had come sooner. These feelings rapidly restored his comfort, while Mrs. Weston, of a more apprehensive disposition, foresaw nothing but a repetition of excuses and delays and, after all her concern for what her husband was to suffer, suffered a great deal more herself. Emma was not at this time in a state of spirits to care really about Mr. Frank Churchill's not coming, except as a disappointment at Randall's. The acquaintance at present had no charm for her. She wanted, rather, to be quiet and out of temptation. But still, As it was desirable that she should appear, in general, like her usual self, she took care to express as much interest in the circumstance, and enter as warmly into Mr. and Mrs. Weston's disappointment as might naturally belong to their friendship. She was the first to announce it to Mr. Knightley, and exclaimed quite as much as was necessary, or, being acting a part, perhaps rather more, at the conduct of the Churchills, in keeping him away she then proceeded to say a good deal more than she felt of the advantage of such an addition to their confined society in surrey the pleasure of looking at somebody new the gala day to highbury and Tyre, which the sight of him would have made and ending with reflections on the churchills again found herself directly involved in a disagreement with mr knightley and to her great amusement perceived that she was taking the other side of the question from her real opinion "'and making use of Mrs. Weston's arguments against herself. "'The Churchills are very likely in fault,' said Mr. Knightley, coolly. "'But I dare say he might come if he would. "'I do not know why you should say so. "'He wishes exceedingly to come, but his uncle and aunt will not spare him. "'I cannot believe that he has not the power of coming, if he made a point of it. "'It is too unlikely for me to believe it without proof.' How odd you are, what has Mr. Frank Churchill done to make you suppose him such an unnatural creature? I am not supposing him at all an unnatural creature in suspecting that he may have learnt to be above his connections and to care very little for anything but his own pleasure from living with those who have always set him the example of it. It is a great deal more natural than one could wish that a young man brought up by those who are proud, luxurious, and selfish. "'should be proud, luxurious, and selfish, too. "'If Frank Churchill had wanted to see his father, "'he would have contrived it between September and January. "'A man at his age! What is he, three or four-and-twenty? "'Cannot be without the means of doing as much as that. "'It is impossible.' "'Well, that's easily said, and easily felt by you, "'who have always been your own master. "'You are the worst judge in the world, Mr. Knightley, of the difficulties of dependence.' You do not know what it is to have tempers to manage. It is not to be conceived that a man of three or four-and-twenty should not have liberty of mind or limb to that amount. He cannot want money, he cannot want leisure. We know, on the contrary, that he has so much of both that he is glad to get rid of them at the idlest haunts in the kingdom. We hear of him for ever at some watering-place or other. A little while ago he was at Weymouth. This proves that he can leave the Churchill's. Yes, sometimes he can, and those times are whenever he thinks it worth his while, whenever there is any temptation of pleasure. It is very unfair to judge of anybody's conduct, without an intimate knowledge of their situation. Nobody who has not been in the interior of a family can say what the difficulties of any individual of that family may be. We ought to be acquainted with Enscombe and with Mrs. Churchill's temper, before we pretend to decide upon what her nephew can do. He may at times be able to do a great deal more than he can at others. "'There is one thing, Emma, which a man can always do if he chooses, and that is his duty, not by manoeuvring and finessing, but by vigour and resolution. It is Frank Churchill's duty to pay this attention to his father. He knows it to be so, by his promises and messages—' "'but if he wished to do it, it might be done. "'A man who felt rightly would say at once, "'simply and resolutely to Mrs. Churchill, "'Every sacrifice of mere pleasure "'you will always find me ready to make to your convenience, "'but I must go and see my father immediately. "'I know he would be hurt by my failing "'in such a mark of respect to him on the present occasion. "'I shall therefore set off to-morrow.' "'If he would say so to her at once, "'in the tone of decision becoming a man,' there would be no opposition made to his going.' (laughs) "'No,' said Emma, laughing. "'But perhaps there might be some made to his coming back again. Such language for a young man entirely dependent to use. (laughs) Nobody but you, Mr. Knightley, would imagine it possible. But you have not an idea of what is requisite in situations directly opposite to your own.' Mr. Frank Churchill, to be making such a speech as that to the uncle and aunt who have brought him up, and are to provide for him, standing up in the middle of the room, I suppose, and speaking as loud as he could. <laughs> how can you imagine such conduct practicable? Depend upon it, Emma. A sensible man would find no difficulty in it. He would feel himself in the right, and the declaration, made, of course, as a man of sense would make it, in a proper manner, would do him more good, raise him higher, fix his interests stronger with the people he depended on, than all that a line of shifts and expedients can ever do. Respect would be added to affection. They would feel that they could trust him, that the nephew who had done rightly by his father would do rightly by them, for they know, as well as he does, as well as all the world must know, that he ought to pay this visit to his father." and while meanly exerting their power to delay it, are in their hearts not thinking the better of him for submitting to their whims. Respect for right conduct is felt by everybody. If he would act in this sort of manner, on principle, consistently, regularly, their little minds would bend to his. Oh, I rather doubt that. You are very fond of bending little minds, but where little minds belong to rich people in authority— "'I think they have a knack of swelling out, till they are quite as unmanageable as great ones. "'I can imagine that if you, as you are, Mr. Knightley, were to be transported and placed all at once in Mr. Frank Churchill's situation, you would be able to say and do just what you have been recommending for him, and it might have a very good effect. The Churchills might not have a word to say in return, but then you would have no habits of early obedience and long observance to break through.' To him who has, it might not be so easy to burst forth at once, into perfect independence, and set all their claims on his gratitude and regard at naught. He may have as strong a sense of what would be right, as you can have, without being so equal, under particular circumstances, to act up to it. Then it would not be so strong a sense, if it failed to produce equal exertion, it could not be an equal conviction." oh the difference of situation and habit i wish you would try to understand what an amiable young man may be likely to feel in directly opposing those whom as a child and boy he has been looking up to all his life our amiable young man is a very weak young man if this be the first occasion of his carrying through a resolution to do right against the will of others it ought to have been a habit with him by this time of following his duty instead of consulting expediency, I can allow for the fears of the child, but not of the man, as he became rational, he ought to have roused himself and shaken off all that was unworthy in their authority. He ought to have opposed the first attempt on their side to make him slight his father. Had he begun as he ought, there would have been no difficulty now. Oh, we shall never agree about him, cried Emma. "'but that is nothing extraordinary. "'I have not the least idea of his being a weak young man. "'I feel sure that he is not. "'Mr. Weston would not be blind to folly, though in his own son. "'But he is very likely to have a more yielding, complying, mild disposition "'than would suit your notions of man's perfection. "'I dare say he has, and though it may cut him off from some advantages, "'it will secure him many others.' "'Yes,' all the advantages of sitting still when he ought to move, and of leading a life of mere idle pleasure, and fancying himself extremely expert in finding excuses for it. He can sit down and write a fine, flourishing letter, full of professions and falsehoods, and persuade himself that he has hit upon the very best method in the world of preserving peace at home, and preventing his father's having any right to complain. His letters disgust me, your feelings are singular they seem to satisfy everybody else i suspect they do not satisfy mrs weston they hardly can satisfy a woman of her good sense and quick feelings standing in a mother's place but without a mother's affection to blind her it is on her account that attention to randalls is doubly due and she must doubly feel the omission had she been a person of consequence herself he would have come, I dare say, and it would not have signified whether he did or no. Can you think your friend behindhand in these sort of considerations? Do you suppose she does not often say all this to herself? No. Emma, your amiable young man, can be amiable only in French, not in English. He may be very amable, have very good manners, and be very agreeable, but he can have no English delicacy towards the feelings of other people." nothing really amiable about him. "'You seem determined to think ill of him.' "'Me? Not at all,' replied Mr. Knightley, rather displeased. "'I do not want to think ill of him. I should be as ready to acknowledge his merits as any other man. But I hear of none, except what are merely personal, that he is well-grown and good-looking, with smooth, plausible manners.' "'Well!' "'If he have nothing else to recommend him, "'he will be a treasure at Highbury. "'We do not often look upon fine young men, "'well-bred and agreeable. "'We must not be nice and ask for all the virtues into the bargain. "'Cannot you imagine, Mr. Knightley, "'what a sensation his coming will produce? "'There will be but one subject "'throughout the parishes of Donwell and Highbury, "'but one interest, one object of curiosity. "'It will be all Mr. Frank Churchill.' we shall think and speak of nobody else you will excuse my being so much overpowered if i find him conversable i shall be glad of his acquaintance but if he is only a chattering coxcomb he will not occupy much of my time or thoughts my idea of him is that he can adapt his conversation to the taste of everybody and has the power as well as the wish of being universally agreeable To you he will talk of farming, to me, of drawing or music, and so on to everybody, having that general information on all subjects, which will enable him to follow the lead, or take the lead, just as propriety may require, and to speak extremely well on each. That is my idea of him. "'And mine,' said Mr. Knightley warmly, "'is that if he turn out anything like it, he will be the most insufferable fellow breathing.' "'What, at three and twenty, to be the king of his company, the great man, the practised politician, who is to read everybody's character, and make everybody's talents conduce to the display of his own superiority? To be dispensing his flatteries round, that he may make all appear like fools compared with himself? My dear Emma, your own good sense could not endure such a puppy when it came to the point.' Oh, "'I will say no more about him,' cried Emma. "'You turn everything to evil. "'We are both prejudiced. "'You against, I for him. "'And we have no chance of agreeing till he is really here.' "'Prejudiced! "'I am not prejudiced. "'But I am very much, and without being at all ashamed of it. "'My love for Mr. and Mrs. Weston gives me a decided prejudice in his favour. "'He is a person I never think of from one month's end to another,' said Mr. Knightley, with a degree of vexation which made Emma immediately talk of something else, though she could not comprehend why he should be angry. To take a dislike to a young man, only because he appeared to be of a different disposition from himself, was unworthy the real liberality of mind which she was always used to acknowledge in him. For with all the high opinion of himself— which she had often laid to his charge. She had never before for a moment supposed it could make him unjust to the merit of another. End of chapter 18 and end of volume 1 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty, April 2009 Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter One. Emma and Harriet had been walking together one morning and, in Emma's opinion, had been talking enough of Mr. Elton for that day. She could not think that Harriet's solace or her own sins required more, and she was therefore industriously getting rid of the subject as they returned. But it burst out again when she thought she had succeeded, and after speaking some time of what the poor must suffer in winter, and receiving no other answer than a very plaintive, "'Mr. Elton is so good to the poor!' She found something else must be done. They were just approaching the house where lived Mrs. and Miss Bates. She determined to call upon them and seek safety in numbers. There was always sufficient reason for such an attention. Mrs. and Miss Bates loved to be called on, and she knew she was considered by the very few who presumed ever to see imperfection in her as rather negligent in that respect." and as not contributing what she ought to the stock of their scanty comforts. She had had many a hint from Mr. Knightley, and some from her own heart as to her deficiency, but none were equal to counteract the persuasion of its being very disagreeable, a waste of time, tiresome women, and all the horror of being in danger of falling in with the second-rate and third-rate of Highbury, who were calling on them for ever, and therefore she seldom went near them, but now she made the sudden resolution of not passing their door without going in, observing, as she proposed it to Harriet, that, as well as she could calculate, they were just now quite safe from any letter from Jane Fairfax. The house belonged to people in business. Mrs. and Miss Bates occupied the drawing-room floor, and there, in the very moderate-sized apartment, which was everything to them, the visitors were most cordially and even gratefully welcomed. The quiet, neat old lady, who with her knitting was seated in the warmest corner, wanting even to give up her place to Miss Woodhouse, and her more active, talking daughter, almost ready to overpower them with care and kindness, thanks for their visit, solicitude for their shoes, anxious inquiries after Mr. Woodhouse's health, cheerful communications about her mother's, and sweet-cake from the buffet, Mrs. Cole had just been there, just called in for ten minutes, and had been so good as to sit an hour with them, and she had taken a piece of cake, and been so kind as to say she liked it very much, and therefore she hoped Miss Woodhouse and Miss Smith would do them the favour to eat a piece too. The mention of the Coles was sure to be followed by that of Mr. Elton. There was intimacy between them, and Mr. Cole had heard from Mr. Elton since his going away. Emma knew what was coming. They must have the letter over again, and settle how long he had been gone, and how much he was engaged in company, and what a favourite he was wherever he went, and how full of the master of ceremonies ball had been. And she went through it very well, with all the interest and all the commendation that could be requisite, and always putting forward to prevent Harriet's being obliged to say a word. This she had been prepared for when she entered the house, But meant, having once talked him handsomely over, to be no farther incommoded by any troublesome topic, and to wander at large amongst all the mistresses and misses of Highbury, and their card-parties. She had not been prepared to have Jane Fairfax succeed Mr. Elton, but he was actually hurried off by Miss Bates. She jumped away from him at last abruptly to the coals, to usher in a letter from her niece. "'Oh, yes!' "'Mr. Elton, I understand. Certainly as to dancing. "'Mrs. Cole was telling me that dancing at the rooms at Bath was—' "'Mrs. Cole was so kind as to sit some time with us, talking of Jane, "'for as soon as she came in she began inquiring after her. "'Jane is so very great a favourite there. "'Whenever she is with us, Mrs. Cole does not know how to show her kindness enough, "'and I must say that Jane deserves it as much as anybody can.' "'And so she began inquiring after her directly, saying—' I know you cannot have heard from Jane lately, because it is not her time for writing. And when I immediately said, But indeed we have. We had a letter this very morning. I do not know that I ever saw anybody more surprised. Have you, upon your honour, said she, Well, that is quite unexpected. Do let me hear what she says. Emma's politeness was at hand directly, to say with smiling interest, Have you heard from Miss Fairfax so lately?' "'I am extremely happy. I hope she is well.' "'Oh, thank you. You are so kind,' replied the happily deceived aunt, while eagerly hunting for the letter. "'Oh, here it is. I was sure it could not be far off, but I had put my huswife upon it, you see, without being aware, and so it was quite hid, but I had it in my hand so very lately that I was almost sure it must be on the table.' I was reading it to Mrs. Cole, and since she went away, I was reading it again to my mother, for it is such a pleasure to her—a letter from Jane—that she can never hear it often enough. So I knew it could not be far off, and here it is, only just under my housewife. And since you are so kind as to wish to hear what she says—oh, but first of all, I really must, in justice to Jane, apologize for her writing so short a letter "'Only two pages, you see. Hardly two. "'And in general she fills the whole paper and crosses half. "'My mother often wonders that I can make it out so well. "'She often says, when the letter is first opened, "'Well, Hetty, now I think you will be put to it "'to make out all that (laughs) checker-work. Don't you, Mum?' "'And then I tell her. "'I am sure she would contrive to make it out herself, "'if she had nobody to do it for her. Every word of it. "'I am sure she would pore over it till she had made out every word.' "'And indeed, though my mother's eyes are not so good as they were, she can see amazingly well still, thank God, with the help of spectacles. "'It is such a blessing. My mother's are really very good indeed. "'Jane often says when she is here, I am sure, Grandmamma, you must have had very strong eyes to see as you do, and so much fine work as you have done too. "'I only wish my eyes may last me as well.' All this, spoken extremely fast, obliged Miss Bates to stop for breath, and Emma said something very civil about the excellence of Miss Fairfax's handwriting. you, "'You are extremely kind,' replied Miss Bates, highly gratified. "'You, who are such a judge, and write so beautifully yourself, I am sure there is nobody's praise that could give us so much pleasure as Miss Woodhouse's. My mother does not hear. She is a little deaf, you know. "'Mom,' addressing her, "'Do you hear what Miss Woodhouse is so obliging to say "'about Jane's handwriting?' "'And Emma had the advantage of hearing her own silly compliment "'repeated twice over before the good old lady could comprehend it. "'She was pondering in the meanwhile upon the possibility, "'without seeming very rude, "'of making her escape from Jane Fairfax's letter, "'and had almost resolved on hurrying away directly "'under some slight excuse, "'when Miss Bates turned to her again and seized her attention.' Uh, my mother's deafness is very trifling you see just nothing at all by only raising my voice and saying anything two or three times over she is sure to hear but then she is used to my voice but it is very remarkable that she should always hear jane better than she does me jane speaks so distinct however she will not find her grandmamma at all deafer than she was two years ago which is saying a great deal at my mother's time of life and it really is two years you know since she was here we never were so long without seeing her before and as i was telling mrs cole we shall hardly know how to make enough of her now are you expecting miss fairfax here soon oh yes next week indeed that must be a very great pleasure thank you you are very kind yes next week everybody is so surprised and everybody says the same obliging things "'I am sure she will be as happy to see her friends at Highbury "'as they can be to see her. "'Yes, Friday or Saturday. "'She cannot say which, because Colonel Campbell "'will be wanting the carriage himself one of those days. "'So very good of them to send her the whole way. "'But they always do, you know. "'Oh, yes, Friday or Saturday next. "'That is what she writes about. "'That is the reason of her writing out of rule, as we call it. "'For in the common course, we should not have heard from her "'before next Tuesday or Wednesday.' "'Yes, so I imagined.' i was afraid there could be little chance of my hearing anything of miss fairfax to-day oh so obliging of you no we should not have heard if it had not been for this particular circumstance of her being come here so soon my mother is so delighted for she is to be three months with us at least three months she says so positively as i am going to have the pleasure of reading to you the case is you see that the campbells are going to ireland mrs dixon has persuaded her father and mother to come over and see her directly they had not intended to go over till the summer but she is so impatient to see them again for till she married last october she was never away from them so much as a week which must make it very strange to be in different kingdoms i was going to say but however different countries and so she wrote a very urgent letter to her mother or her father i declare i do not know which it was but we shall see presently in jane's letter wrote in mr dixon's name as well as her own to press their coming over directly and they would give them the meeting in dublin and take them back to their country seat ballycraig a beautiful place i fancy jane has heard a great deal of its beauty from mr dixon i mean I do not know that she ever heard about it from anybody else, but it was very natural, you know, that he should like to speak of his own place while he was paying his addresses. And as Jane used to be very often walking out with them, for Colonel and Mrs. Campbell were very particular about their daughters not walking out often with only Mr. Dixon, for which I do not at all blame them, of course she heard everything he might be telling Miss Campbell about his own home in Ireland, and I think she wrote us word that he had shown them some drawings of the place, views that he had taken himself. He is a most amiable, charming young man, I believe. Jane was quite longing to go to Ireland from his account of things. At this moment, an ingenious and animating suspicion entering Emma's brain with regard to Jane Fairfax, this charming Mr. Dixon, and the not going to Ireland, she said, with the insidious design of farther discovery, You must feel it very fortunate that Miss Fairfax should be allowed to come to you at such a time. Considering the very particular friendship between her and Mrs. Dixon, you could hardly have expected her to be excused from accompanying Colonel and Mrs. Campbell. Oh, very true, very true indeed, the very thing that we have always been rather afraid of for we should not have liked to have her at such a distance from us for months together, not able to come if anything was to happen. but you see everything turns out for the best they want her mr and mrs dixon excessively to come over with colonel and mrs campbell quite depend upon it nothing can be more kind or pressing than their joint invitation jane says as you will hear presently Mr. Dixon does not seem in the least backward in any attention. He is a most charming young man. Ever since the service he rendered Jane at Weymouth, when they were out in that party on the water, and she, by the sudden whirling round of something or other among the sails, would have been dashed into the sea at once, and actually was all but gone, if he had not, with the greatest presence of mind caught hold of her habit. I can never think of it without trembling. But ever since we had the history of that day, I have been so fond of Mr. Dixon." "'but in spite of all her friend's urgency "'and her own wish of seeing Ireland, "'Miss Fairfax prefers devoting the time "'to you and Mrs. Bates?' "'Yes, entirely her own doing, "'entirely her own choice, "'and Colonel and Mrs. Campbell "'think she does quite right, "'just what they should recommend, "'and indeed they particularly wish her "'to try her native air, "'as she has not been quite so well as usual lately.' "'Oh, I am concerned to hear of it.' "'I think they judge wisely. "'But Mrs. Dixon must be very much disappointed. "'Mrs. Dixon, I understand, "'has no remarkable degree of personal beauty, "'is not by any means to be compared with Miss Fairfax.' "'Oh, no, you are very obliging to say such things, "'but certainly not. "'There is no comparison between them. "'Miss Campbell always was absolutely plain, "'but extremely elegant and amiable.' "'Yes, that, of course.' oh jane caught a bad cold poor thing so long ago as the seventh of november as i am going to read to you and has never been well since a long time is not it for a cold to hang upon her she never mentioned it before because she would not alarm us just like her so considerate but however she is so far from well that her kind friends the campbells think she had better come home and try an air that always agrees with her and they have no doubt that three or four months at highbury will entirely cure her and it is certainly a great deal better that she should come here than go to Ireland, if she is unwell. Nobody could nurse her as we should do. It appears to me the most desirable arrangement in the world." and so she is to come to us next friday or saturday and the campbells leave town in their way to holyhead the monday following as you will find from jane's letter so sudden you may guess dear miss woodhouse what a flurry it has thrown me in if it was not for the drawback of her illness but i am afraid we must expect to see her grown thin and looking very poorly I must tell you what an unlucky thing happened to me as to that. I always make a point of reading Jane's letters through to myself first, before I read them aloud to my mother, you know, for fear of there being anything in them to distress her. Jane desired me to do it, so I always do, and so I began to-day with my usual caution. But no sooner did I come to the mention of her being unwell than I burst out quite frightened with, Bless me! Poor Jane is ill! Which my mother, being on the watch, heard distinctly, and was sadly alarmed at. However, when I read on, I found it was not near so bad as I had fancied at first, and I make so light of it now to her that she does not think much about it. But I cannot imagine how I could be so off my guard. If Jane does not get well soon, we will call him Mr. Perry. The expense shall not be thought of, and though he is so liberal and so fond of Jane that I dare say he would not mean to charge anything for attendance, we could not suffer it to be so, you know. He has a wife and family to maintain, and is not to be giving away his time.' well now i have just given you a hint of what jane writes about we will turn to her letter and i am sure she tells her own story a great deal better than i can tell it for her i am afraid we must be running away said emma glancing at harriet and beginning to rise my father will be expecting us i had no intention i thought i had no power of staying more than five minutes when i first entered the house i merely called because i would not pass the door without inquiring after mrs bates "'but I have been so pleasantly detained. "'Now, however, we must wish you and Mrs. Bates good morning.' "'And not all that could be urged to detain her succeeded. "'She regained the street, happy in this, "'that though much had been forced on her against her will, "'though she had, in fact, heard the whole substance "'of Jane Fairfax's letter, "'she had been able to escape the letter itself.'" End of Chapter 1 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, By Moira Fogarty. April 2009. Emma by Jane Austen. Volume 2. Chapter 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty emma by jane austen volume two chapter two jane fairfax was an orphan the only child of mrs bates's youngest daughter the marriage of lieutenant fairfax of the regiment of infantry and miss jane bates had had its day of fame and pleasure hope and interest but nothing now remained of it save the melancholy remembrance of him dying in action abroad of his widow sinking under consumption and grief soon afterwards, and this girl. By birth she belonged to Highbury, and when, at three years old, on losing her mother, she became the property, the charge, the consolation, the fondling of her grandmother and aunt, there had seemed every probability of her being permanently fixed there, of her being taught only what very limited means could command— and growing up with no advantages of connection or improvement to be engrafted on what nature had given her in a pleasing person good understanding and warm-hearted well-meaning relations but the compassionate feelings of a friend of her father gave a change to her destiny this was colonel campbell who had very highly regarded fairfax as an excellent officer and most deserving young man and father had been indebted to him for such attentions, during a severe camp fever, as he believed had saved his life. These were claims which he did not learn to overlook, though some years passed away from the death of poor Fairfax, before his own return to England put anything in his power. When he did return, he sought out the child and took notice of her. He was a married man, with only one living child, a girl, about Jane's age and Jane became their guest, paying them long visits, and growing a favourite with all. And before she was nine years old, his daughter's great fondness for her, and his own wish of being a real friend, united to produce an offer from Colonel Campbell of undertaking the whole charge of her education. It was accepted, and from that period Jane had belonged to Colonel Campbell's family, and had lived with them entirely, only visiting her grandmother from time to time. THE PLAN WAS THAT SHE SHOULD BE BROUGHT UP FOR EDUCATING OTHERS, THE VERY FEW HUNDRED POUNDS WHICH SHE INHERITED FROM HER FATHER, MAKING INDEPENDENCE IMPOSSIBLE. TO PROVIDE FOR HER OTHERWISE WAS OUT OF COLONEL CAMPBELL'S POWER, FOR THOUGH HIS INCOME BY PAY AND APPOINTMENTS WAS HANDSOME, HIS FORTUNE WAS MODERATE, AND MUST BE ALL HIS DAUGHTERS, BUT BY GIVING HER AN EDUCATION HE HOPED TO BE SUPPLYING THE MEANS OF RESPECTABLE SUBSISTENCE HEREAFTER. Such was Jane Fairfax's history. She had fallen into good hands, known nothing but kindness from the Campbells, and been given an excellent education. Living constantly with right-minded and well-informed people, her heart and understanding had received every advantage of discipline and culture. And Colonel Campbell's residence being in London, every lighter talent had been done full justice to by the attendance of first-rate masters." her disposition and abilities were equally worthy of all that friendship could do, and at eighteen or nineteen she was, as far as such an early age can be qualified for the care of children, fully competent to the office of instruction herself. But she was too much beloved to be parted with. Neither father nor mother could promote, and the daughter could not endure it. The evil day was put off. It was easy to decide that she was still too young, and Jane remained with them sharing, as another daughter, in all the rational pleasures of an elegant society, and a judicious mixture of home and amusement, with only the drawback of the future, the sobering suggestions of her own good understanding, to remind her that all this might soon be over. The affection of the whole family, the warm attachment of Miss Campbell in particular, was the more honourable to each party from the circumstance of Jane's decided superiority, both in beauty and acquirements. That nature had given it in feature could not be unseen by the young woman, nor could her higher powers of mind be unfelt by the parents. They continued together with unabated regard, however, till the marriage of Miss Campbell, who by that chance, that luck, which so often defies anticipation in matrimonial affairs, giving attraction to what is moderate than to what is superior, engaged the affections of Mr. Dixon, a young man, rich and agreeable, almost as soon as they were acquainted, and was eligibly and happily settled, while Jane Fairfax had yet her bread to earn. This event had very lately taken place, too lately for any thing to be yet attempted by her less fortunate friend towards entering on her path of duty though she had now reached the age which her own judgment had fixed on for beginning. She had long resolved that one-and-twenty should be the period. With the fortitude of a devoted novitiate, she had resolved at one-and-twenty to complete the sacrifice, and retire from all the pleasures of life, of rational intercourse, equal society, peace, and hope, to penance and mortification for ever. The good sense of Colonel and Mrs. Campbell could not oppose such a resolution, though their feelings did. As long as they lived, no exertions would be necessary. Their home might be hers for ever, and for their own comfort they would have retained her wholly. But this would be selfishness. What must be at last had better be soon. Perhaps they began to feel it might have been kinder and wiser to have resisted the temptation of any delay, and spared her from a taste of such enjoyments of ease and leisure as must now be relinquished." still, however, affection was glad to catch at any reasonable excuse for not hurrying on the wretched moment. She had never been quite well since the time of their daughter's marriage. Until she should have completely recovered her usual strength, they must forbid her engaging in duties, which, so far from being compatible with a weakened frame and varying spirits, seemed, under the most favourable circumstances, to require something more than human perfection of body and mind— be discharged with tolerable comfort. With regard to her not accompanying them to Ireland, her account to her aunt contained nothing but truth, though there might be some truths not told. It was her own choice to give the time of their absence to Highbury, to spend, perhaps, her last months of perfect liberty with those kind relations to whom she was so very dear, and the Campbells, whatever might be their motive or motives, whether single or double or treble, "'gave the arrangement of their ready sanction, "'and said that they depended more "'on a few months spent in her native air "'for the recovery of her health "'than on anything else. "'Certain it was that she was to come, "'and that Highbury, "'instead of welcoming that perfect novelty "'which had been so long promised it, "'Mr. Frank Churchill, "'must put up for the present with Jane Fairfax, "'who could bring only the freshness "'of a two years' absence. "'Emma was sorry,' to have to pay civilities to a person she did not like through three long months, to be always doing more than she wished, and less than she ought. Why she did not like Jane Fairfax might be a difficult question to answer. Mr. Knightley had once told her it was because she saw in her the really accomplished young woman which she wanted to be thought herself, and though the accusation had been eagerly refuted at the time— there were moments of self-examination in which her conscience could not quite acquit her. But she could never get acquainted with her. She did not know how it was, but there was such coldness and reserve, such apparent indifference whether she pleased or not. And then her aunt was such an eternal talker, and she was made such a fuss with by everybody. And it had been always imagined that they were to be so intimate— because their ages were the same, everybody had supposed they must be so fond of each other. These were her reasons. She had no better. It was a dislike so little just, every imputed fault was so magnified by fancy, that she never saw Jane Fairfax the first time, after any considerable absence, without feeling that she had injured her, and now, when the due visit was paid, on her arrival, after a two years' interval— she was particularly struck with the very appearance and manners, which for those two whole years she had been depreciating. Jane Fairfax was very elegant, remarkably elegant, and she had herself the highest value for elegance. Her height was pretty, just such as almost everybody would think tall, and nobody could think very tall. Her figure particularly graceful, her size a most becoming medium, between fat and thin, though a slight appearance of ill-health seemed to point out the likeliest evil of the two. Emma could not but feel all this, and then her face, her features! There was more beauty in them altogether than she had remembered. It was not regular, but it was very pleasing beauty. Her eyes, a deep grey, with dark eyelashes and eyebrows, had never been denied their praise, but the skin which she had been used to cavil at, as wanting colour, had a clearness and delicacy which really needed no fuller bloom. It was a style of beauty of which elegance was the reigning character, and as such she must, in honour, by all her principles, admire it. Elegance which, whether of person or of mind, she saw so little in Highbury. There, not to be vulgar was distinction and merit. In short, she sat, during the first visit, looking at jane fairfax with twofold complacency the sense of pleasure and the sense of rendering justice and was determining that she would dislike her no longer when she took in her history indeed her situation as well as her beauty when she considered what all this elegance was destined to what she was going to sink from how she was going to live it seemed impossible to feel anything but compassion and respect especially if to every well-known particular entitling her to interest, were added the highly probable circumstance of an attachment to Mr. Dixon, which she had so naturally started to herself. In that case nothing could be more pitiable or more honourable than the sacrifices she had resolved on. Emma was very willing now to acquit her of having seduced Mr. Dixon's actions from his wife, or of anything mischievous which her imagination had suggested at first, If it were love, it might be simple, single, successless love on her side alone. She might have been unconsciously sucking in the sad poison while a sharer of his conversation with her friend, and from the best, the purest of motives, might now be denying herself this visit to Ireland, and resolving to divide herself effectually from him and his connections by soon beginning her career of laborious duty. Upon the whole— Emma left her with such softened, charitable feelings as made her look around in walking home, and lament that Highbury afforded no young man worthy of giving her independence, nobody that she could wish to scheme about for her. These were charming feelings, but not lasting. Before she had committed herself by any public profession of eternal friendship for Jane Fairfax, or done more towards a recantation of past prejudices and errors than saying to Mr. Knightley, she certainly is handsome. She is better than handsome. Jane had spent an evening at Hartfield with her grandmother and aunt, and everything was relapsing, much into its usual state. Former provocations appeared. The aunt was as tiresome as ever, more tiresome, because anxiety for her health was now added to admiration of her powers, and they had to listen to the description of exactly how little bread and butter she ate for breakfast, and how small a slice of mutton for dinner, as well as to see exhibitions of new caps and new work-bags for her mother and herself, and Jane's offences rose again. They had music, Emma was obliged to play, and the thanks and praise which necessarily followed appeared to her an affectation of candour, an air of greatness, meaning only to show off in higher style her very own superior performance. She was, besides, which was the worst of all, so cold, so cautious. There was no getting at her real opinion. Wrapped up in a cloak of politeness, she seemed determined to hazard nothing. She was disgustingly, was suspiciously reserved. If anything could be more, where all was most, she was more reserved on the subject of Weymouth and the Dixons than anything. She seemed bent on giving no real insight into Mr. Dixon's character, "'or her own value for his company, "'or opinion of the suitableness of the match. "'It was all general approbation and smoothness, "'nothing delineated or distinguished. "'It did her no service, however. "'Her caution was thrown away. "'Emma saw its artifice, "'and returned to her first surmises. "'There probably was something more to conceal "'than her own preference. "'Mr. Dixon, perhaps, "'had been very near changing one friend for the other,' "'or been fixed only to Miss Campbell "'for the sake of the future £12,000. "'The like reserve prevailed on other topics. "'She and Mr. Frank Churchill "'had been at Weymouth at the same time. "'It was known that they were a little acquainted, "'but not a syllable of real information "'could Emma procure as to what he truly was. "'Was he handsome? "'She believed he was reckoned a very fine young man. "'Was he agreeable?' "'He was generally thought so. "'Did he appear a sensible young man, "'a young man of information? "'At a watering-place, "'or in a common London acquaintance, "'it was difficult to decide on such points. "'Manners were all that could be safely judged of, "'under a much longer knowledge "'than they had yet had of Mr. Churchill. "'She believed everybody found his manners pleasing. "'Emma could not forgive her.' End of chapter 2. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty. April 2009. Emma by Jane Austen. Volume 2, Chapter 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, Please visit Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter Three. Emma could not forgive her, but as neither provocation nor resentment were discerned by Mister Knightley, who had been of the party and had seen only proper attention and pleasing behaviour on each side, he was expressing the next morning, being at Hartfield again on business with Mister Woodhouse his approbation of the whole, not so openly as he might have done had her father been out of the room, but speaking plain enough to be very intelligible to Emma. He had been used to think her unjust to Jane, and had now great pleasure in marking an improvement. A very pleasant evening, he began, as soon as Mr. Woodhouse had been talked into what was necessary, told that he understood, and the papers swept away. Particularly pleasant, "'You and Miss Fairfax gave us some very good music. "'I do not know a more luxurious state, sir, "'than sitting at one's ease to be entertained a whole evening "'by two such young women, "'sometimes with music and sometimes with conversation. "'I am sure Miss Fairfax must have found the evening pleasant, Emma. "'You left nothing undone. "'I was glad you made her play so much, "'for having no instrument at her grandmother's, "'it must have been a real indulgence.' "'I am happy you approved,' said Emma, smiling. "'But I hope I am not often deficient in what is due to guests at Hartfield.' "'No, my dear,' said her father instantly. "'That I am sure you are not. "'There is nobody half so attentive and civil as you are. "'If anything, you are too attentive. "'The muffin last night, if it had been handed round once, "'I think it would have been enough.' "'No,' said Mr. Knightley, nearly at the same time. "'You are not often deficient, "'not often deficient either in manner or comprehension. "'I think you understand me, therefore.' "'An arch look expressed, "'I understand you well enough. "'But she said only, "'Miss Fairfax is reserved. "'I always told you she was, a little, "'but you will soon overcome all that part of her reserve "'which ought to be overcome, "'all that has its foundation in diffidence.' "'What arises from discretion must be honored. "'Hm. You think her diffident. I do not see it.' "'My dear Emma,' said he, moving from his chair into one close by her, "'you are not going to tell me, I hope, that you had not a pleasant evening?' "'Oh, no. I was pleased with my own perseverance in asking questions, "'and amused to think how little information I obtained.' "'I am disappointed,' was his only answer. "'I hope everybody had a pleasant evening,' said Mr. Woodhouse in his quiet way. "'I had. "'Once I felt the fire rather too much. "'But then I moved back my chair a little, a very little, and it did not disturb me. "'Miss Bates was very chatty and good-humoured, as she always is, "'though she speaks rather too quick. "'However, she is very agreeable, and Mrs. Bates, too, in a different way.' I like old friends, and Miss Jane Fairfax is a very pretty sort of young lady, a very pretty, and a very well-behaved young lady indeed. She must have found the evening agreeable, Mr. Knightley, because she had Emma." True, sir, and Emma, because she had Miss Fairfax. Emma saw his anxiety, and wishing to appease it, at least for the present, said, and with a sincerity which no one could question, "'She is a sort of elegant creature that one cannot keep one's eyes from i am always watching her to admire and i do pity her from my heart mr knightley looked as if he were more gratified than he cared to express and before he could make any reply mr woodhouse whose thoughts were on the bateses said it is a great pity that their circumstances should be so confined a great pity indeed and i have often wished but it is so little one can venture to do "'small, trifling presence of anything uncommon. "'Now we have killed a porker, "'and Emma thinks of sending them a loin or a leg. "'It is very small and delicate. Hartfield pork is not like any other pork. "'But still it is pork. "'And, my dear Emma, "'unless one could be sure of their making it into steaks, "'nicely fried as ours are fried, "'without the smallest grease, "'and not roasted, for no stomach can bear roast pork, "'I think we had better send the leg.' do not you think so my dear my dear papa i sent the whole hind quarter i knew you would wish it there will be the leg to be salted you know which is so very nice and the loin to be dressed directly in any manner they like that's right my dear very right i had not thought of it before but that is the best way they must not oversalt the leg and then if it is not over salted and if it is very thoroughly boiled Just as Cyril boils ours, and eaten very moderately of, with a boiled turnip and a little carrot or parsnip, I do not consider it unwholesome. Emma, said Mr. Knightley presently, I have a piece of news for you. You like news, and I heard an article in my way hither that I think will interest you. News? Oh, yes, I always like news. What is it? Why do you smile so? Where did you hear it, at Randall's?' he had time only to say, "'No, not at Randalls. I have not been near Randalls,' when the door was thrown open, and Miss Bates and Miss Fairfax walked into the room. Full of thanks, and full of news, Miss Bates knew not which to give quickest. Mr. Knightley soon saw that he had lost his moment, and that not another syllable of communication could rest with him. "'Oh, my dear sir, how are you this morning?' "'My dear Miss Woodhouse, I come quite overpowered. "'Such a beautiful hind-quarter of pork! "'You are too bountiful. "'Have you heard the news? "'Mr. Elton is going to be married!' "'Emma had not had time even to think of Mr. Elton, "'and she was so completely surprised "'that she could not avoid a little start "'and a little blush at the sound. "'There is my news. "'I thought it would interest you,' said Mr. Knightley, "'with a smile which implied a conviction of some part "'of what had passed between them. "'But where could you hear it?' cried Miss Bates. "'Where could you possibly hear it, Mr. Knightley? "'For it is not five minutes since I received Mrs. Cole's note. "'No, it cannot be more than five, or at least ten, "'for I had got my bonnet and Spencer on just ready to come out. "'I was only gone down to speak to Patty again about the pork. "'Jane was standing in the passage. "'Were not you, Jane?' for my mother was so afraid that we had not any salting-pan large enough. So I said I would go down and see, and Jane said, Shall I go down instead, for I think you have a little cold, and Patty has been washing the kitchen. Oh, my dear, said I, well, and just then came the note. A Miss Hawkins, that's all I know, a Miss Hawkins of Bath. But, Mr. Knightley, how could you possibly have heard it? "'For the very moment Mr. Cole told Mrs. Cole of it, she sat down and wrote to me. "'A Miss Hawkins?' "'I was with Mr. Cole on business an hour and a half ago. "'He had just read Elton's letter, as I was shown in, and handed it to me directly.' "'Well, that is quite... I suppose there never was a piece of news more generally interesting. My dear sir, you really are too bountiful.' "'My mother desires her very best compliments and regards, "'and a thousand thanks, and says you really quite oppress her.' "'We consider our Hartfield pork,' replied Mr. Woodhouse. "'Indeed, it certainly is so very superior to all other pork, "'that Emma and I cannot have a greater pleasure than—' "'Oh, my dear sir, as my mother says, "'our friends are only too good to us. "'If ever there were people who, without having great wealth themselves, "'had everything they could wish for— "'I am sure it is us. "'We may well say that our lot is cast in a goodly heritage. "'Well, Mr. Knightley, and so you actually saw the letter. "'Well, it was short, merely to announce, "'but cheerful, exulting, of course.' "'Here was a sly glance at Emma. "'He had been so fortunate as to— "'I forget the precise words. "'One has no business to remember them. "'The information was, as you state— "'that he was going to be married to a Miss Hawkins. "'By his style, I should imagine it just settled.' "'Mr. Elton going to be married?' said Emma as soon as she could speak. "'He will have everybody's wishes for his happiness.' "'He is very young to settle,' was Mr. Woodhouse's observation. "'He had better not be in a hurry. "'He seemed to me very well off as he was.' "'We were always glad to see him at Hartfield.' "'A new neighbour for us all, Miss Woodhouse,' said Miss Bates joyfully. "'My mother is so pleased. "'She says she cannot bear to have the poor old vicarage without a mistress. "'This is great news indeed. "'Jane, you have never seen Mr. Elton. "'No wonder that you have such a curiosity to see him.' "'Jane's curiosity did not appear of that absorbing nature as wholly to occupy her.' "'No. I have never seen Mr. Elton,' she replied, starting on this appeal. "'Is he—is he a tall man?' "'Who shall answer that question?' cried Emma. "'My father would say yes, Mr. Knightley no, and Miss Bates and I that he is just the happy medium. "'When you have been here a little longer, Miss Fairfax, "'you will understand that Mr. Elton is the standard of perfection in Highbury, both in person and mind.' very true miss woodhouse so she will he is the very best young man but my dear jane if you remember i told you yesterday he was precisely the height of mr perry miss hawkins i dare say an excellent young woman his extreme attention to my mother wanting her to sit in the vicarage pew that she might hear the better for my mother is a little deaf you know it is not much but she does not hear quite quick jane says that colonel campbell is a little deaf he fancied bathing might be good for it, the warm bath, but she says it did him no lasting benefit. Colonel Campbell, you know, is quite our angel, and Mr. Dixon seems a very charming young man, quite worthy of him. It is such a happiness when good people get together, and they always do. Now, here will be Mr. Elton and Miss Hawkins, and there are the coles such very good people, and the Perrys. I suppose there never was a happier or a better couple than Mr. and Mrs. Perry. "'I say, sir,' turning to Mr. Woodhouse, "'I think there are few places with such society as Highbury. "'I always say we are quite blessed in our neighbours. "'My dear sir, if there is one thing my mother loves better than another, "'it is pork, a roast loin of pork.' "'As to who, or what Miss Hawkins is, "'or how long he has been acquainted with her,' said Emma, "'nothing, I suppose, can be known. "'One feels that it cannot be a very long acquaintance. "'He has been gone only four weeks.' Nobody had any information to give, and after a few more wonderings, Emma said, "You are silent, Miss Fairfax, but I hope you mean to take an interest in this news. You, who have been hearing and seeing so much of late on these subjects, who must have been so deep in the business on Miss Campbell's account, we shall not excuse your being indifferent about Mr. Elton and Miss Hawkins when I have seen Mr. Elton replied Jane." I dare say I shall be interested, but I believe it requires that with me, and as it is some months since Miss Campbell married, the impression may be a little worn off. "'Yes, he has been gone just four weeks, as you observe, Miss Woodhouse,' said Miss Bates. four weeks yesterday. A Miss Hawkins. Well, I had always rather fancied it would be some young lady hereabouts. Not that I ever—' Mrs. Cole once whispered to me—' but I immediately said, no, Mr. Elton is a most worthy young man, but... In short, I do not think I am particularly quick at those sort of discoveries. I do not pretend to it. What is before me, I see. At the same time, nobody could wonder if Mr. Elton should have aspired. Miss Woodhouse lets me chatter on so good-humouredly. She knows I would not offend for the world. How does Miss Smith do? She seems quite recovered now. Have you heard from Mrs. John Knightley lately? Oh, those dear little children. Jane, do you know I always fancy Mr. Dixon like Mr. John Knightley? I mean in person, tall, and with that sort of look, and not very talkative. Quite wrong, my dear aunt. There is no likeness at all. Very odd. But one never does form a just idea of anybody beforehand. One takes up a notion and runs away with it, "'Mr. Dixon, you say, is not, strictly speaking, handsome?' "'Handsome? "'Oh, no, far from it, certainly plain. "'I told you he was plain.' "'My dear, you said that Miss Campbell would not allow him to be plain, "'and that you yourself—oh, as for me, my judgment is worth nothing. "'Where I have a regard, I always think a person well-looking, "'but I gave what I believed the general opinion when I called him plain.' "'Well, my dear Jane, I believe we must be running away. "'The weather does not look well, and Grandmamma will be uneasy. "'You are too obliging, my dear Miss Woodhouse, "'but we really must take leave. "'This has been a most agreeable piece of news indeed. "'I shall just go round by Mrs. Coles. "'But I shall not stop three minutes. "'And, Jane, you had better go home directly. "'I would not have you out in a shower. "'We think she is the better for Highbury already. "'Thank you, we do indeed.' "'I shall not attempt calling on Mrs. Goddard, "'for I really do not think she cares for anything but boiled pork. "'When we dress the leg, it will be another thing. "'Good morning to you, my dear sir.' "'Oh, Mr. Knightley is coming, too. "'Well, that is so very... "'I am sure if Jane is tired, you will be so kind as to give her your arm. "'Mr. Elton and Miss Hawkins. "'Good morning to you.' "'Emma, alone with her father, "'had half her attention wanted by him,' while he lamented that young people would be in such a hurry to marry, and to marry strangers, too, and the other half she could give to her own view of the subject. It was to herself an amusing and a very welcome piece of news, as proving that Mr. Elton could not have suffered long, but she was sorry for Harriet. Harriet must feel it, and all that she could hope was, by giving the first information herself, to save her from hearing it abruptly from others. It was now about the time that she was likely to call. If she were to meet Miss Bates in her way, oh! And upon its beginning to rain, Emma was obliged to expect that the weather would be detaining her at Mrs. Goddard's, and that the intelligence would undoubtedly rush upon her without preparation. The shower was heavy but short, and it had not been over five minutes, when in came Harriet, "'with just the heated, agitated look "'which hurrying thither with a full heart was likely to give, "'and the, "'Oh, Miss Woodhouse, what do you think has happened?' "'which instantly burst forth, "'had all the evidence of corresponding perturbation. "'As the blow was given, "'Emma felt that she could not now show greater kindness than in listening, "'and Harriet, unchecked, ran eagerly through what she had to tell. "'She had set out for Mrs. Goddard's half an hour ago,' She had been afraid it would rain, she had been afraid it would pour down every moment, but she thought she might get to Hartfield first. She had hurried on as fast as possible, but then, as she was passing by the house where a young woman was making up a gown for her, she thought she would just step in and see how it went on, and though she did not seem to stay half a moment there, soon after she came out it began to rain, and she did not know what to do, so she ran on directly as fast as she could and took shelter at Ford's. "'Ford's was the principal woolen-draper, linen-draper, "'and haberdasher's shop united, "'the shop first in size and fashion in the place. "'And so there she had sat "'without an idea of anything in the world, "'full ten minutes, perhaps, "'when all of a sudden who should come in? "'To be sure it was so very odd, "'but they always dealt at Ford's. "'Who should come in but Elizabeth Martin and her brother? "'Dear Miss Woodhouse, only think!' "'I thought I should have fainted. "'Oh, I did not know what to do. "'I was sitting near the door. "'Elizabeth saw me directly, but he did not. "'He was busy with the umbrella. "'I am sure she saw me, but she looked away directly and took no notice, "'and they both went to quite the farther end of the shop, "'and I kept sitting near the door. "'Oh, dear, I was so miserable. "'I am sure I must have been as white as my gown. "'I could not go away, you know, because of the rain.' "'but I did so wish myself anywhere in the world but there. "'Oh, dear Miss Woodhouse! "'Well, at last, I fancy, he looked around and saw me, "'for instead of going on with her buyings, "'they began whispering to one another. "'I am sure they were talking of me, "'and I could not help thinking that he was persuading her to speak to me. "'Do you think he was, Miss Woodhouse? "'For presently she came forward, came quite up to me, "'and asked me how I did, and seemed ready to shake hands, if I would.' She did not do any of it in the same way that she used. I could see she was altered. But, however, she seemed to try to be very friendly, and we shook hands and stood talking some time. But I know no more what I said. I was in such a tremble. I remember, she said, she was sorry we never met now, which I thought almost too kind. Dear Miss Woodhouse, I was absolutely miserable. By that time it was beginning to hold up, and I was determined that nothing should stop me from getting away. And then, only think, I found he was coming up towards me too. Slowly, you know, and as if he did not quite know what to do. And so he came, and spoke, and I answered, and I stood for a minute feeling dreadfully, you know, one can't tell how, and then I took courage, and said it did not rain, and I must go, and so off I set and I had not got three yards from the door when he came after me, only to say, if I was going to Hartfield, he thought I had much better go round by Mr. Coles's stables, for I should find the near way quite floated by this rain. Oh, dear, I thought it would have been the death of me. So I said I was very much obliged to him. You know I could not do less. And then he went back to Elizabeth, and I came round by the stables. I believe I did. "'but I hardly knew where I was or anything about it. "'Oh, Miss Woodhouse, "'I would rather done anything than have it happen. "'And yet, you know, "'there was a sort of satisfaction "'in seeing him behave so pleasantly "'and so kindly. "'And Elizabeth, too. "'Oh, Miss Woodhouse, "'do talk to me and make me comfortable again.' "'Very sincerely did Emma wish to do so, "'but it was not immediately in her power. "'She was obliged to stop and think.' she was not thoroughly comfortable herself. The young man's conduct and his sisters seemed the result of real feeling, and she could not but pity them. As Harriet described it, there had been an interesting mixture of wounded affection and genuine delicacy in their behaviour. But she had believed them to be well-meaning, worthy people before, and what difference did this make in the evils of the connection? It was folly to be disturbed by it. Of course he must be sorry to lose her, they must all be sorry. Ambition as well as love had probably been mortified. They might all have hoped to rise by Harriet's acquaintance. And besides, what was the value of Harriet's description? So easily pleased, so little discerning. What signified her praise? She exerted herself, and did try to make her comfortable, by considering all that had passed as a mere trifle, and quite unworthy of being dwelt on. "'It might be distressing for the moment,' said she, "'but you seem to have behaved extremely well, "'and it is over and may never, can never, as a first meeting, occur again, "'and therefore you need not think about it.' Harriet said, "'Very true, and she would not think about it, "'but still she talked of it. "'Still she could talk of nothing else, "'and Emma, at last, in order to put the Martins out of her head, "'was obliged to hurry on the news,' Which she had meant to give with so much tender caution hardly knowing herself whether to rejoice or be angry ashamed or only amused at such a state of mind in poor harriet such a conclusion of mr elton's importance with her mr elton's rights however gradually revived though she did not feel the first intelligence as she might have done the day before or an hour before its interest soon increased and before their first conversation was over she had talked herself into all the sensations of curiosity, wonder and regret, pain and pleasure, as to this fortunate Miss Hawkins, which could conduce to place the Martins under proper subordination in her fancy. Emma learned to be rather glad that there had been such a meeting. It had been serviceable in deadening the first shock, without retaining any influence to alarm. As Harriet now lived, the Martins could not get at her, without seeking her, where hitherto they had wanted either the courage or the condescension to seek her. For since her refusal of the brother, the sisters had never been at Mrs. Goddard's, and a twelvemonth might pass without their being thrown together again with any necessity or even any power of speech. End of Volume 2, Chapter 3, recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty, July 2009. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter Four. Human nature is so well disposed towards those who are in interesting situations that a young person, who either marries or dies, is sure of being kindly spoken of. A week had not passed since Miss Hawkins's name was first mentioned in Highbury, before she was, by some means or other, discovered to have every recommendation of person and mind, to be handsome, elegant, highly accomplished, and perfectly amiable, and when Mr. Elton himself arrived to triumph in his happy prospects, and circulate the fame of her merits, There was very little more for him to do than to tell her Christian name and say whose music she principally played. Mr. Elton returned a very happy man. He had gone away rejected and mortified, disappointed in a very sanguine hope, after a series of what appeared to him strong encouragement, and not only losing the right lady, but finding himself debased to the level of a very wrong one. He had gone away deeply offended he came back engaged to another, and to another as superior, of course, to the first, as under such circumstances what is gained always is to what is lost. He came back gay and self-satisfied, eager and busy, caring nothing for Miss Woodhouse and defying Miss Smith. The charming Augusta Hawkins, in addition to all the usual advantages of perfect beauty and merit, was in possession of an independent fortune. Of so many thousands as would always be called ten, a point of some dignity, as well as some convenience. The story told well. He had not thrown himself away, he had gained a woman of ten thousand pounds or thereabouts, and he had gained her with such delightful rapidity, the first hour of introduction had been so very soon followed by distinguishing notice, the history which he had to give Mrs. Cole at the rise and progress of the affair was so glorious, the steps so quick, from the accidental rencontre to the dinner at Mr. Green's and the party at Mrs. Brown's, smiles and blushes rising in importance, with consciousness and agitation richly scattered. The lady had been so easily impressed, so sweetly disposed, had in short, to use a most intelligible phrase, been so very ready to have him that vanity and prudence were equally contented he had caught both substance and shadow both fortune and affection and was just the happy man he ought to be talking only of himself and his own concerns expecting to be congratulated ready to be laughed at and with cordial fearless smiles now addressing all the young ladies of the place to whom a few weeks ago he would have been more cautiously gallant The wedding was no distant event, as the parties had only themselves to please, and nothing but the necessary preparations to wait for, and when he set out for Bath again there was a general expectation, which a certain glance of Mrs. Cole's did not seem to contradict, that when he next entered Highbury he would bring his bride. During his present short stay Emma had barely seen him, but just enough to feel that the first meeting was over and to give her the impression of his not being improved by the mixture of pique and pretension now spread over his air. She was, in fact, beginning very much to wonder that she had ever thought him pleasing at all, and his sight was so inseparably connected with some very disagreeable feelings that, except in a moral light, as a penance, a lesson, a source of profitable humiliation to her own mind, she would have been thankful to be assured of never seeing him again. She wished him very well, but he gave her pain, and his welfare twenty miles off would administer most satisfaction. The pain of his continued residence in Highbury, however, must certainly be lessened by his marriage. Many vain solicitudes would be prevented, many awkwardnesses smoothed by it. A Mrs. Elton would be an excuse for any change of intercourse. Former intimacy might sink without remark. It would be almost beginning their life of civility again of the lady individually emma thought very little she was good enough for mr elton no doubt accomplished enough for highbury handsome enough to look plain probably by harriet's side as to connection there emma was perfectly easy persuaded that after all his own vaunted claims and disdain of harriet he had done nothing on that article truth seemed attainable what she was must be uncertain but who she was might be found out and setting aside the ten thousand pounds it did not appear that she was at all Harriet's superior she brought no name no blood no alliance miss hawkins was the youngest of the two daughters of a bristol merchant of course he must be called But, as the whole of the profits of his mercantile life appeared so very moderate, it was not unfair to guess the dignity of his line of trade had been very moderate also. Part of every winter she had been used to spend in Bath, but Bristol was her home, the very heart of Bristol, for though the father and mother had died some years ago, an uncle remained in the law-line, nothing more distinctly honourable was hazarded of him than that he was in the law-line and with him the daughter had lived emma guessed him to be the drudge of some attorney and too stupid to rise and all the grandeur of the connection seemed dependent on the elder sister who was very well married to a gentleman in a great way near bristol who kept two carriages that was the wind-up of the history that was the glory of miss hawkins could she but have given Harriet her feelings about it all? She had talked her into love, but, alas, she was not so easily to be talked out of it. The charm of an object to occupy the many vacancies of Harriet's mind was not to be talked away. He might be superseded by another. He certainly would indeed. Nothing could be clearer. Even a Robert Martin would have been sufficient, but nothing else, she feared, would cure her. Harriet was one of those who, having once begun, would be always in love. And now, poor girl, she was considerably worse from this reappearance of Mr. Elton. She was always having a glimpse of him somewhere or other. Emma saw him only once, but two or three times every day Harriet was sure just to meet with him, or just to miss him, just to hear his voice or see his shoulder, just to have something occur, to preserve him in her fancy in all the favouring warmth of surprise and conjecture she was moreover perpetually hearing about him for excepting when at hartfield she was always among those who saw no fault in mr elton and found nothing so interesting as the discussion of his concerns and every report therefore every guess all that had already occurred all that might occur in the arrangement of his affairs comprehending income servants and furniture was continually in agitation around her her regard was receiving strength by invariable praise of him and her regrets kept alive and feelings irritated by ceaseless repetitions of miss hawkins's happiness and continual observation of how much he seemed attached his air as he walked by the house the very sitting of his hat being all in proof of how much he was in love had it been allowable entertainment had there been no pain to her friend or reproach to herself in the waverings of harriet's mind emma would have been amused by its variations sometimes mr elton predominated sometimes the martins and each was occasionally useful as a check to the other mr elton's engagement had been the cure of the agitation of meeting mr martin the unhappiness produced by the knowledge of that engagement had been a little put aside by Elizabeth Barton's calling at Mrs Goddard's a few days afterwards. Harriet had not been at home, but a note had been prepared and left for her, written in the very style to touch, a small mixture of reproach with a great deal of kindness, and till Mr Elton himself appeared she had been much occupied by it, continually pondering over what could be done in return, and wishing to do more than she dared to confess. But Mr Elton in person! had driven away all such cares. While he stayed, the Martins were forgotten, and on the very morning of his setting off for Bath again, Emma, to dissipate some of the distress it occasioned, judged it best for her to return Elizabeth Martin's visit. How that visit was to be acknowledged, what would be necessary, and what might be safest, had been a point of some doubtful consideration absolute neglect of the mother and sisters when invited to come would be ingratitude it must not be and yet the danger of a renewal of the acquaintance after much thinking she could determine on nothing better than harriet's returning the visit but in a way that if they had understanding should convince them that it was to be only a formal acquaintance she meant to take her in the carriage leave her at the abbey mill while she drove a little farther and call for her again so soon as to allow no time for insidious applications, or dangerous recurrences to the past, and give the most decided proof of what degree of intimacy was chosen for the future. She could think of nothing better, and though there was something in it which her own heart could not approve, something of ingratitude, merely glossed over, it must be done, or what would become of Harriet? End Of Volume Two, Chapter Four. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty, July two thousand nine. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume Two, Chapter Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 5. Small heart had Harriet for visiting. Only half an hour before her friend called for her at Mrs. Goddard's, her evil stars had led her to the very spot where, at that moment, a trunk, directed to the Reverend Philip Elton, Whitehart Bath, was to be seen under the operation of being lifted into the butcher's cart, which was to convey it to where the coaches passed, and everything in this world, excepting that trunk and the direction, was consequently a blank. She went, however, and when they reached the farm, and she was to be put down at the end of the broad, neat gravel walk, which led between espalier apple trees to the front door, The sight of everything which had given her so much pleasure the autumn before was beginning to revive a little local agitation, and when they parted Emma observed her to be looking around with a sort of fearful curiosity which determined her not to allow the visit to exceed the proposed quarter of an hour. She went on herself to give that portion of time to an old servant who was married and settled in Donwell. The quarter of an hour brought her punctually to the white gate again, and Miss Smith, receiving her summons, was with her without delay, and unattended by any alarming young man. She came solitarily down the gravel walk, a Miss Martin just appearing at the door, and parting with her seemingly with ceremonious civility. Harriet could not very soon give an intelligible account. She was feeling too much, but at last Emma collected from her enough to understand the sort of meeting, and the sort of pain it was creating. She had seen only Mrs. Martin and the two girls. They had received her doubtingly, if not coolly, and nothing beyond the merest commonplace had been talked almost all the time, till just at last, when Mrs. Martin's saying, all of a sudden, that she thought Miss Smith was grown, had brought on a more interesting subject and a warmer manner." in that very room she had been measured last September with her two friends. There were the pencilled marks and memorandums on the wainscot by the window. He had done it. They all seemed to remember the day, the hour, the party, the occasion, to feel the same consciousness, the same regrets, to be ready to return to the same good understanding. And they were just growing again like themselves. Harriet, as Emma must suspect, as ready as the best of them to be cordial and happy, when the carriage reappeared and all was over. The style of the visit and the shortness of it were then felt to be decisive, fourteen minutes to be given to those with whom she had thankfully passed six weeks, not six months, ago. Emma could not but picture it all, and feel how justly they might resent, how naturally Harriet must suffer. It was a bad business." She would have given a great deal, or endured a great deal, to have had the Martins in a higher rank of life. They were so deserving, that a little higher should have been enough. But as it was, how could she have done otherwise? Impossible! She could not repent. They must be separated. But there was a great deal of pain in the process, so much to herself at this time, that she soon felt the necessity of a little consolation, "'and resolved on going home by way of Randalls to procure it. "'Her mind was quite sick of Mr. Elton and the Martins. "'The refreshment of Randalls was absolutely necessary. "'It was a good scheme, but on driving to the door "'they heard that neither master nor mistress was at home. "'They had both been out some time, "'and the man believed they were gone to Hartfield. "'Oh, this is too bad!' cried Emma as they turned away and now we shall just miss them, too provoking. I do not know when I have been so disappointed. And she leaned back in the corner, to indulge her murmurs, or to reason them away, probably a little of both, such being the commonest process of a not ill-disposed mind. Presently the carriage stopped. She looked up. It was stopped by Mr. and Mrs. Weston, who were standing to speak to her. There was instant pleasure in the sight of them, and still greater pleasure was conveyed in sound, for Mr. Weston immediately accosted her with, "'How do you do? How do you do? We have been sitting with your father. Glad to see him so well. Frank comes to-morrow. I had a letter this morning. We see him to-morrow by dinner-time to a certainty. He is at Oxford to-day, and he comes for a whole fortnight. I knew it would be so.' if he had come at Christmas, he could not have stayed three days. I was always glad he did not come at Christmas. Now we are going to have just the right weather for him, fine, dry, settled weather. We shall enjoy him completely. Everything has turned out exactly as we could wish. There was no resisting such news, no possibility of avoiding the influence of such a happy face as Mr. Weston's. Confirmed, as it all was, by the words and the countenance of his wife, fewer and quieter, but not less to the purpose. To know that she thought his coming certain was enough to make Emma consider it so. And sincerely did she rejoice in their joy. It was a most delightful reanimation of exhausted spirits. The worn-out past was sunk in the freshness of what was coming, and in the rapidity of half a moment's thought she hoped Mr. Elton would now be talked of no more. Mr. Weston gave her the history of the engagements at Enscombe, which allowed his son to answer for having an entire fortnight at his command, as well as the route and the method of his journey, and she listened and smiled and congratulated. "'I shall soon bring him over to Hartfield,' said he at the conclusion. Emma could imagine she saw a touch of the arm at this speech from his wife. "'We had better move on, Mr. Weston,' said she. "'We are detaining the girls.' "'Well, well, I am ready,' and turning again to Emma. "'But you must not be expecting such a very fine young man. "'You have only had my account, you know. "'I dare say he is really nothing extraordinary,' "'though his own sparkling eyes at the moment "'were speaking a very different conviction.' "'Emma could look perfectly unconscious and innocent,' "'and answer in a manner that appropriated nothing. "'Think of me to-morrow, my dear Emma, about four o'clock,' "'was Mrs. Weston's parting injunction, "'spoken with some anxiety, and meant only for her. Four o'clock, depend on it. "'He will be here by three. was Mr. Weston's quick amendment, "'and so ended a most satisfactory meeting. "'Emma's spirits were mounted quite up to happiness. "'Everything wore a different air.' James and his horses seemed not half so sluggish as before. When she looked at the hedges she thought the elder, at least, must soon be coming out. And when she turned round to Harriet she saw something like a look of spring, a tender smile even there. Will Mr. Frank Churchill pass through Bath as well as Oxford? Was a question, however, which did not augur much. But neither geography nor tranquillity could come all at once and Emma was now in a humour to resolve that they should both come in time. The morning of the interesting day arrived, and Mrs. Weston's faithful pupil did not forget, either at ten or eleven or twelve o'clock, that she was to think of her at four. "'My dear, dear anxious friend,' said she in mental soliloquy, while walking downstairs from her own room, "'always over-careful for everybody's comfort but your own,' I SEE YOU NOW, IN ALL YOUR LITTLE FIDGETS, GOING AGAIN AND AGAIN INTO HIS ROOM, TO BE SURE THAT ALL IS RIGHT. THE CLOCK STRUCK TWELVE AS SHE PASSED THROUGH THE HALL. "'Tis twelve. I SHALL NOT FORGET TO THINK OF YOU FOUR HOURS HENCE. AND BY THIS TIME TOMORROW, PERHAPS, OR A LITTLE LATER, I MAY BE THINKING OF THE POSSIBILITY OF THEIR ALL-CALLING HERE. I AM SURE THEY WILL BRING HIM SOON. She opened the parlour door, and saw two gentlemen sitting with her father, Mr. Weston and his son. They had been arrived only a few minutes, and Mr. Weston had scarcely finished his explanation of Frank's being a day before his time, and her father was yet in the midst of his very civil welcome and congratulations, when she appeared, to have her share of surprise, introduction and pleasure." THE FRANK CHURCHILL SO LONG TALKED OF, SO HIGH IN INTEREST WAS ACTUALLY BEFORE HER. HE WAS PRESENTED TO HER, AND SHE DID NOT THINK TOO MUCH HAD BEEN SAID IN HIS PRAISE. HE WAS A VERY GOOD-LOOKING YOUNG MAN. HEIGHT, AIR, ADDRESS, ALL WERE UNEXCEPTIONABLE, AND HIS COUNTENANCE HAD A GREAT DEAL OF THE SPIRIT AND LIVELINESS OF HIS FATHERS. HE LOOKED QUICK AND SENSIBLE. SHE FELT IMMEDIATELY THAT SHE SHOULD LIKE HIM and there was a well-bred ease of manner, and a readiness to talk, which convinced her that he came intending to be acquainted with her, and that acquainted they soon must be. He had reached Randalls the evening before. She was pleased with the eagerness to arrive which had made him alter his plan, and travel earlier, later, and quicker, that he might gain half a day. "'I told you yesterday,' cried Mr. Weston with exultation, I told you all that he would be here before the time named. I remembered what I used to do myself. One cannot creep upon a journey. One cannot help getting on faster than one has planned. And the pleasure of coming in upon one's friends before the lookout begins is worth a great deal more than any little exertion it needs." "'It is a great pleasure where one can indulge in it,' said the young man. "'Though there are not many houses that I should presume on so far. But in coming home, I felt I might do anything." The word home made his father look on him with fresh complacency. Emma was directly sure that he knew how to make himself agreeable. The conviction was strengthened by what followed. He was very much pleased with Randall's, thought it a most admirably arranged house, would hardly allow it even to be very small, admired the situation, the walk to Highbury, Highbury itself, Hartfield still more and professed himself to have always felt the sort of interest in the country which none but one's own country gives, and the greatest curiosity to visit it. That he should never have been able to indulge so amiable a feeling before passed suspiciously through Emma's brain. But still, if it were a falsehood it was a pleasant one, and pleasantly handled. His manner had no air of study or exaggeration, He did really look and speak as if in a state of no common enjoyment. Their subjects in general were such as belonged to an opening acquaintance. On his side were the inquiries, was she a horsewoman, pleasant rides, pleasant walks, had they a large neighbourhood, Highbury perhaps afforded society enough, there were several very pretty houses in and about it, balls, had they balls, was it a musical society? But when satisfied on all these points, and their acquaintance proportionably advanced, he contrived to find an opportunity, while their two fathers were engaged with each other, of introducing his mother-in-law, and speaking of her with so much handsome praise, so much warm admiration, so much gratitude for the happiness she secured to his father, and her very kind reception of himself, as was an additional proof of his knowing how to please and of his certainly thinking it worth while to try to please her. He did not advance a word of praise beyond what she knew to be thoroughly deserved by Mrs. Weston, but undoubtedly he could know very little of the matter. He understood what would be welcome, he could be sure of little else. His father's marriage, he said, had been the wisest measure, every friend must rejoice in it, and the family from whom he had received such a blessing must be ever considered as having conferred the highest obligation on him. He got as near as he could to thanking her for Miss Taylor's merits, without seeming quite to forget that in the common course of things it was to be rather supposed that Miss Taylor had formed Miss Woodhouse's character than Miss Woodhouse Miss Taylor's. And at last, as if resolved to qualify his opinion completely for travelling round to its object, he wound it all up with astonishment at the youth and beauty of her person. "'Elegant, agreeable manners I was prepared for,' said he. "'But I confess that, considering every thing, "'I had not expected more than a very tolerably well-looking woman of a certain age. "'I did not know that I was to find a pretty young woman in Mrs. Weston.' "'Oh, you cannot see too much perfection in Mrs. Weston for my feelings,' said Emma." "'Were you to guess her to be eighteen, I should listen with pleasure. "'But she would be ready to quarrel with you for using such words. "'Don't let her imagine that you have spoken of her as a pretty young woman.' "'I hope I should know better,' he replied. "'No, depend upon it,' with a gallant bow, "'that in addressing Mrs. Weston I should understand whom I might praise, "'without any danger of being thought extravagant in my terms.' Emma wondered whether the same suspicion of what might be expected from their knowing each other, which had taken strong possession of her mind, had ever crossed his, and whether his compliments were to be considered as marks of acquiescence or proofs of defiance. She must see more of him to understand his ways. At present she only felt they were agreeable. She had no doubt of what Mr. Weston was often thinking about. His quick eye she detected again and again, glancing towards them with a happy expression. And even, when he might have determined not to look, she was confident that he was often listening. Her own father's perfect exemption from any thought of the kind, the entire deficiency in him of all such sort of penetration or suspicion, was a most comfortable circumstance. Happily, he was not farther from approving matrimony than from foreseeing it though always objecting to every marriage that was arranged he never suffered beforehand from the apprehension of any it seemed as if he could not think so ill of any two persons understanding as to suppose they meant to marry till it were proved against them she blessed the favouring blindness he could now without the drawback of a single unpleasant surmise without a glance forward at any possible treachery in his guest give way to all his natural kind-hearted civility in solicitous inquiries after Mr. Frank Churchill's accommodation on his journey, through the sad evils of sleeping two nights on the road, and express very genuine unmixed anxiety to know that he had certainly escaped catching cold, which, however, he could not allow him to feel quite assured of himself till another night. A reasonable visit paid, Mr. Weston began to move. He must be going. He had business at the Crown, about his hay, and a great many errands for Mrs. Weston at Ford's. But he need not hurry anybody else. His son, being too well-bred to hear the hint, rose immediately also, saying, "'As you are going farther on business, sir, I will take the opportunity of paying a visit, which must be paid some day or other, and therefore may as well be paid now. I have the honour of being acquainted with a neighbour of yours,' turning to Emma." a lady residing in or near highbury a family of the name of fairfax i shall have no difficulty i suppose in finding the house though fairfax i believe is not the proper name i should rather say barnes or bates do you know any family of that name to be sure we do cried his father mrs bates we passed her house i saw miss bates at the window true true you are acquainted with miss fairfax "'I remember you knew her at Weymouth, and a fine girl she is. "'Call upon her by all means.' "'Oh, there is no necessity for my calling this morning,' said the young man. "'Another day would do as well. "'But there was that degree of acquaintance at Weymouth which—' "'Oh, go to-day, go to-day. "'Do not defer it. "'What is right to be done cannot be done too soon. "'And besides, I must give you a hint, Frank— Any want of attention to her here should be carefully avoided. You saw her with the Campbells, when she was the equal of everybody she mixed with. But here she is with a poor old grandmother, who has barely enough to live on. If you do not call early, it will be a slight. The son looked convinced. I have heard her speak of the acquaintance, said Emma. She is a very elegant young woman. He agreed to it but with so quiet a yes as inclined her almost to doubt his real concurrence. And yet there must be a very distinct sort of elegance for the fashionable world, if Jane Fairfax could be thought only ordinarily gifted with it. "'If you were never particularly struck by her manners before,' said she, "'I think you will to-day. You will see her to advantage. See her and hear her. No, I am afraid you will not hear her at all, for she has an aunt who never holds her tongue.' "'You are acquainted with Miss Jane Fairfax, sir, are you?' said Mr. Woodhouse, always the last to make his way in conversation. "'Then give me leave to assure you that you will find her a very agreeable young lady. She is staying here on a visit to her grandmamma and aunt, very worthy people. I have known them all my life. They will be extremely glad to see you, I am sure, and one of my servants shall go with you to show you the way. My dearest sir, upon no account in the world—' my father can direct me. But your father is not going so far. He is only going to the Crown, quite on the other side of the street. And there are a great many houses. You might be very much at a loss. And it is a very dirty walk, unless you keep on the footpath. But my coachman can tell you where you had best cross the street. Mr. Frank Churchill still declined it, looking as serious as he could. And his father gave his hearty support by calling out, my good friend this is quite unnecessary frank knows a puddle of water when he sees it and as to mrs bates he may get there from the crown in a hop step and a jump they were permitted to go alone and with a cordial nod from one and a graceful bow from the other the two gentlemen took leave emma remained very well pleased with this beginning of the acquaintance and could now engage to think of them all at randalls any hour of the day with full confidence in their comfort End of chapter 5. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty, July 2009. Emma, by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 6. The next morning brought Mr. Frank Churchill again. He came with Mrs. Weston, to whom, and to Highbury, he seemed to take very cordially. He had been sitting with her, it appeared, most companionably at home, till her usual hour of exercise, and on being desired to choose their walk, immediately fixed on Highbury. He did not doubt there being very pleasant walks in every direction, but if left to him, he should always choose the same. Highbury, that airy, cheerful, happy-looking Highbury, would be his constant attraction. Highbury, with Mrs. Weston, stood for Hartfield and she trusted to its bearing the same construction with him. They walked thither directly. Emma had hardly expected them, for Mr. Weston, who had called in for half a minute, in order to hear that his son was very handsome, knew nothing of their plans, and it was an agreeable surprise to her, therefore, to perceive them walking up to the house together, arm in arm. She was wanting to see him again, and especially to see him in company with Mrs. Weston, upon his behaviour to whom her opinion of him was to depend if he were deficient there nothing should make amends for it but on seeing them together she became perfectly satisfied it was not merely in fine words or hyperbolical compliment that he paid his duty nothing could be more proper or pleasing than his whole manner to her nothing could more agreeably denote his wish of considering her as a friend and securing her affection and there was time enough for emma to form a reasonable judgment as their visit included all the rest of the morning they were all three walking about together for an hour or two first round the shrubberies of hartfield and afterwards in highbury he was delighted with everything admired hartfield sufficiently for mr woodhouse's ear and when their going farther was resolved on confessed his wish to be made acquainted with the whole village and found matter of commendation and interest much oftener than emma could have supposed some of the objects of his curiosity spoke very amiable feelings he begged to be shown the house which his father had lived in so long and which had been the home of his father's father and on recollecting that an old woman who had nursed him was still living walked in quest of her cottage from one end of the street to the other and though in some points of pursuit or observation there was no positive merit they showed altogether a good will towards hybrian general which must be very like a merit to those he was with Emma watched and decided that with such feelings as were now shown, it could not be fairly supposed that he had been ever voluntarily absenting himself, that he had not been acting a part, or making a parade of insincere professions, and that Mr. Knightley certainly had not done him justice. Their first pause was at the Crown Inn, an inconsiderable house, though the principal one of the sort, where a couple of pair of post-horses were kept, More for the convenience of the neighborhood than from any run on the road and his companions had not expected to be detained by any interest excited there but in passing it they gave the history of the large room visibly added it had been built many years ago for a ballroom and while the neighborhood had been in a particularly populous dancing state had been occasionally used as such but such brilliant days had long passed away and now the highest purpose for which it was ever wanted was to accommodate a whist club established among the gentlemen and half-gentlemen of the place. He was immediately interested. Its character as a ballroom caught him, and instead of passing on, he stopped for several minutes at the two superior sashed windows which were open, to look in and contemplate its capabilities, and lament that its original purpose should have ceased. He saw no fault in the room, he would acknowledge none which they suggested no it was long enough broad enough handsome enough it would hold the very number for comfort they ought to have balls there at least every fortnight through the winter why had not miss woodhouse revived the former good old days of the room she who could do anything in highbury the want of proper families in the place and the conviction that none beyond the place in its immediate environs could be tempted to attend were mentioned but he was not satisfied he could not be persuaded that so many good-looking houses as he saw around him could not furnish members enough for such a meeting and even when particulars were given and families described he was still unwilling to admit that the inconvenience of such a mixture would be anything or that there would be the smallest difficulty in everybody's returning into their proper place the next morning he argued like a young man very much bent on dancing and Emma was rather surprised to see the constitution of the Weston prevail so decidedly against the habits of the Churchills. He seemed to have all the life and spirit, cheerful feelings and social inclinations of his father, and nothing of the pride or reserve of Venscombe. Of pride, indeed, there was perhaps scarcely enough. His indifference to a confusion of rank bordered too much on inelegance of mind. He could be no judge, however, of the evil he was holding cheap. It was but an effusion of lively spirits. At last he was persuaded to move on from the front of the crown, and being now almost facing the house where the Bates is lodged, Emma recollected his intended visit the day before, and asked him if he had paid it. "'Yes! Oh, yes!' he replied. I was just going to mention it. A very successful visit. I saw all the three ladies, and felt very much obliged to you for your preparatory hint." If the talking aunt had taken me quite by surprise, it must have been the death of me. As it was, I was only betrayed into paying a most unreasonable visit. Ten minutes would have been all that was necessary, perhaps all that was proper, and I had told my father I should certainly be at home before him. But there was no getting away, no pause, and to my utter astonishment I found, when he, finding me nowhere else, joined me there at last, that I had been actually sitting with them very nearly three-quarters of an hour." THE GOOD LADY HAD NOT GIVEN ME THE POSSIBILITY OF ESCAPE BEFORE. AND HOW DID YOU THINK MISS FAIRFAX LOOKING? ILL, VERY ILL, THAT IS, IF A YOUNG LADY CAN EVER BE ALLOWED TO LOOK ILL, BUT THE EXPRESSION IS HARDLY ADMISSIBLE, Mrs. WESTON, IS IT? LADIES CAN NEVER LOOK ILL, AND, SERIOUSLY, MISS FAIRFAX IS NATURALLY SO PALE AS ALMOST ALWAYS TO GIVE THE APPEARANCE OF ILL HEALTH, A MOST DEPLORABLE WANT OF COMPLEXION. "'Emma would not agree to this, and began a warm defence of Miss Fairfax's complexion. "'It was certainly never brilliant, but she would not allow it to have a sickly hue in "'general, and there was a softness and delicacy in her skin which gave peculiar elegance to "'the character of her face. He listened with all due deference, acknowledged that he had "'heard many people say the same, but yet he must confess that to him nothing could "'make amends for the want of the fine glow of health.' Where features were indifferent, a fine complexion gave beauty to them all, and where they were good, the effect was—' Fortunately, he need not attempt to describe what the effect was. "'Well,' said Emma, "'there is no disputing about taste. At least you admire her, except her complexion.' He shook his head and laughed. "'I cannot separate Miss Fairfax and her complexion. Did you see her often at Weymouth? Were you often in the same society?' At this moment they were approaching Ford's, and he hastily exclaimed, "'Ha! this must be the very shop that everybody attends every day of their lives, as my father informs me. He comes to Highbury himself, he says, six days out of the seven, and has always business at Ford's. If it be not inconvenient to you, pray let us go in, that I may prove myself to belong to the place. To be a true citizen of Highbury, I must buy something at Ford's. It will be taking out my freedom.' "'I dare say they sell gloves?' "'Oh, yes, gloves and everything. "'I do admire your patriotism. "'You will be adored in Highbury. "'You were very popular before you came, "'because you were Mr. Weston's son. "'But lay out half a guinea at Ford's "'and your popularity will stand upon your own virtues.' "'They went in, and while the sleek, well-tied parcels "'of men's beavers and York tan were bringing down "'and displaying on the counter, he said,' but i beg your pardon miss woodhouse you were speaking to me you were saying something at the very moment of this burst of my amour patriae do not let me lose it i assure you the utmost stretch of public fame would not make me amends for the loss of any happiness in private life i merely asked whether you had known much of miss fairfax and her party at weymouth and now that i understand your question i must pronounce it to be a very unfair one It is always the lady's right to decide on the degree of acquaintance. Miss Fairfax must already have given her account. I shall not commit myself by claiming more than she may choose to allow. Upon my word! You answer as discreetly as she could do herself. But her account of everything leaves so much to be guessed. She is so very reserved, so very unwilling to give the least information about anybody, that I really think you may say what you like of your acquaintance with her. "'May I indeed? Then I will speak the truth, and nothing suits me so well. I met her frequently at Weymouth. I had known the Campbells a little in town, and at Weymouth we were very much in the same set. Colonel Campbell is a very agreeable man, and Mrs. Campbell a friendly, warm-hearted woman. I like them all.' "'You know Miss Fairfax's situation in life,' I conclude. "'What she is destined to be?' "'Yes,' rather hesitatingly. "'I believe I do.' "'You get upon delicate subjects, Emma,' said Mrs. Weston, smiling. "'Remember that I am here. "'Mr. Frank Churchill hardly knows what to say "'when you speak of Miss Fairfax's situation in life. "'I will move a little farther off.' "'I certainly do forget to think of her,' said Emma, "'as having ever been anything but my friend, and my dearest friend.' "'He looked as if he fully understood and honoured such a sentiment.' "'when the gloves were bought, and they had quitted the shop again. "'Did you ever hear the young lady we were speaking of play?' said Frank Churchill. "'Ever hear her?' repeated Emma. "'You forget how much she belongs to Highbury. "'I have heard her every year of our lives since we both began. "'She plays charmingly.' "'You think so, do you?' "'I wanted the opinion of someone who could really judge. "'She appeared to me to play well, that is, with considerable taste.' but I know nothing of the matter myself. I am excessively fond of music, but without the smallest skill or right of judging anybody's performance. I have been used to hear hers admired, and I remember one proof of her being thought to play well. A man, a very musical man, and in love with another woman, engaged to her, on the point of marriage, would yet never ask that other woman to sit down to the instrument, if the lady in question could sit down instead." never seemed to like to hear one, if he could hear the other. That, I thought, in a man of known musical talent, was some proof. "'Proof, indeed,' said Emma, highly amused. "'Mr. Dixon is very musical, is he? We shall know more about them all in half an hour from you than Miss Fairfax would have vouchsafed in half a year.' "'Yes, Mr. Dixon and Miss Campbell were the persons, and I thought it a very strong proof.' Certainly, very strong it was. To own the truth, a great deal stronger than if I had been Miss Campbell, would have been at all agreeable to me. I could not excuse a man's having more music than love, more ear than eye, a more acute sensibility to fine sounds than to my feelings. How did Miss Campbell appear to like it? Well, it was her very particular friend, you know. Poor comfort, said Emma, laughing, one would rather have a stranger preferred than one's very particular friend. With a stranger it might not recur again, but the misery of having a very particular friend always at hand, to do everything better than one does oneself! Oh, poor Miss Dixon! Well, I am glad she has gone to settle in Ireland. You are right, it was not very flattering to Miss Campbell, but she really did not seem to feel it. So much the better." or so much the worse. I do not know which. But be it sweetness or be it stupidity in her, quickness of friendship or dullness of feeling, there was one person, I think, who must have felt it. Miss Fairfax herself! She must have felt the improper and dangerous distinction. As to that, I do not... Oh, do not imagine that I expect an account of Miss Fairfax's sensations from you, or from anybody else, They are known to no human being, I guess, but herself. But if she continued to play whenever she was asked by Mr. Dixon, one may guess what one chooses. There appeared such a perfectly good understanding among them all, he began rather quickly, but checking himself added, however, it is impossible for me to say on what terms they really were, how it might all be behind the scenes. I can only say that there was smoothness outwardly, "'but to you who have known Miss Fairfax from a child "'must be a better judge of her character "'and of how she is likely to conduct herself "'in critical situations than I can be. "'I have known her from a child, undoubtedly. "'We have been children and women together, "'and it is natural to suppose that we should be intimate, "'that we should have taken to each other "'whenever she visited her friends. "'But we never did. "'I hardly know how it has happened,' "'a little, perhaps, from that wickedness on my side which was prone to take disgust "'towards a girl so idolized and so cried up as she always was "'by her aunt and grandmother, and all their set. "'And then her reserve. "'I never could attach myself to any one so completely reserved. "'It is a most repulsive quality, indeed,' said he. "'Oftentimes very convenient, no doubt, but never pleasing. "'There is safety in reserve, but no attraction.' one cannot love a reserved person. Not till the reserve ceases towards oneself, and then the attraction may be the greater. But I must be more in want of a friend, or an agreeable companion, than I have yet been, to take the trouble of conquering anybody's reserve to procure one. Intimacy between Miss Fairfax and me is quite out of the question. I have no reason to think ill of her, not the least, except that such extreme and perpetual cautiousness of word and manner, such a dread of giving a distinct idea about anybody, is apt to suggest suspicions of there being something to conceal. He perfectly agreed with her, and, after walking together so long and thinking so much alike, Emma felt herself so well acquainted with him that she could hardly believe it to be only their second meeting. He was not exactly what she had expected, less of the man of the world in some of his notions— less of the spoiled child of fortune therefore better than she had expected his ideas seemed more moderate his feelings warmer she was particularly struck by his manner of considering mr elton's house which as well as the church he would go and look at and would not join them in finding much fault with no he could not believe it a bad house not such a house as a man was to be pitied for having if it were to be shared with the woman he loved "'He could not think any man to be pitied for having that house. "'There must be ample room in it for every real comfort. "'The man must be a blockhead who wanted more.' "'Mrs. Weston laughed, and said he did not know what he was talking about. "'Used only to a large house himself, "'and without ever thinking how many advantages and accommodations were attached to its size, "'he could be no judge of the privations inevitably belonging to a small one.' But Emma, in her own mind, determined that he did know what he was talking about, and that he showed a very amiable inclination to settle early in life, and to marry, from worthy motives. He might not be aware of the inroads on domestic peace to be occasioned by no housekeeper's room, or a bad butler's pantry, but no doubt he did perfectly feel that Enscombe could not make him happy, and that whenever he were attached he would willingly give up much of wealth, To be allowed an early establishment. End of chapter 6. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario by Moira Fogarty, July 2009. Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty Emma by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 7 Emma's very good opinion of Frank Churchill was a little shaken the following day by hearing that he was gone off to London merely to have his hair cut. A sudden freak seemed to have seized him at breakfast, and he had sent for a chaise and set off, intending to return to dinner, but with no more important view that appeared than having his hair cut. There was certainly no harm in his travelling sixteen miles twice over on such an errand, but there was an air of foppery and nonsense in it which she could not approve. It did not accord with the rationality of plan, the moderation in expense, or even the unselfish warmth of heart which she had believed herself to discern in him yesterday. Vanity, extravagance, love of change, restlessness of temper, which must be doing something good or bad, heedlessness as to the pleasure of his father and Mrs. Weston, indifferent as to how his conduct might appear in general, he became liable to all these charges. His father only called him a coxcomb, and thought it a very good story. But that Mrs. Weston did not like it was clear enough, by her passing it over as quickly as possible, and making no other comment than that all young people would have their little whims. With the exception of this little blot, Emma found that his visit hitherto had given her friend only good ideas of him. Mrs. Weston was very ready to say how attentive and pleasant a companion he made himself, how much she saw to like in his disposition altogether he appeared to have a very open temper, certainly a very cheerful and lively one. She could observe nothing wrong in his notions, a great deal decidedly right. He spoke of his uncle with warm regard, was fond of talking of him, said he would be the best man in the world if he were left to himself, and though there was no being attached to the aunt, he acknowledged her kindness with gratitude, and seemed to mean always to speak of her with respect. This was all very promising and, but for such an unfortunate fancy for having his hair cut, there was nothing to denote him unworthy of the distinguished honour which her imagination had given him. The honour, if not of being really in love with her, of being at least very near it, and saved only by her own indifference, for still her resolution held of never marrying. The honour, in short, of being marked out for her by all their joint acquaintance. Mr. Weston, on his side, added a virtue to the account which must have some weight. He gave her to understand that Frank admired her extremely, thought her very beautiful and very charming, and with so much to be said for him altogether she found she must not judge him harshly. As Mrs. Weston observed, all young people would have their little whims. There was one person among his new acquaintance in Surrey not so leniently disposed. In general he was judged, throughout the parishes of Donwell and Highbury, with great candour. Liberal allowances were made for the little excesses of such a handsome young man, one who smiled so often and bowed so well. But there was one spirit among them not to be softened, from its power of censure by bows or smiles—Mr. Knightley. The circumstance was told him at Hartfield. For the moment he was silent but Emma heard him almost immediately afterwards say to himself, over a newspaper he held in his hand, Hum! Just the trifling silly fellow I took him for. She had half a mind to resent, but an instant's observation convinced her that it was really said only to relieve his own feelings, and not meant to provoke, and therefore she let it pass. Although in one instance the bearers of not-good tidings— Mr. and Mrs. Weston's visit this morning was in another respect particularly opportune. Something occurred while they were at Hartfield to make Emma want their advice, and, which was still more lucky, she wanted exactly the advice they gave. This was the occurrence. The Coles had been settled some years in Highbury, and were very good sort of people—friendly, liberal, and unpretending—but, on the other hand, they were of low origin, in trade, and only moderately genteel. On their first coming into the country, they had lived in proportion to their income, quietly, keeping little company, and that little, unexpensively. But the last year or two had brought them a considerable increase of means, the house in town had yielded greater profits, and fortune in general had smiled on them. With their wealth their views increased, their want of a larger house, their inclination for more company. They added to their house, to their number of servants, to their expenses of every sort, and by this time were, in fortune and style of living, second only to the family at Hartfield. Their love of society and their new dining-room prepared everybody for their keeping dinner company, and a few parties chiefly among the single men had already taken place. The regular and best families Emma could hardly suppose they would presume to invite, neither Donwell nor Hartfield nor Randalls. Nothing should tempt her to go if they did, and she regretted that her father's known habits would be giving her refusal less meaning than she could wish. The Coles were very respectable in their way, but they ought to be taught that it was not for them to arrange the terms on which the superior families would visit them. This lesson she very much feared they would receive only from herself. She had little hope of Mr. Knightley, none of mr weston but she had made up her mind how to meet this presumption so many weeks before it appeared that when the insult came at last it found her very differently affected donwell and randalls had received their invitation and none had come for her father and herself and mrs weston's accounting for it with i suppose they will not take the liberty with you they know you do not dine out was not quite sufficient She felt that she should like to have had the power of refusal, and afterwards, as the idea of the party to be assembled there, consisting precisely of those whose society was dearest to her, occurred again and again, she did not know that she might not have been tempted to accept. Harriet was to be there in the evening, and the Bateses. They had been speaking of it as they walked about Highbury the day before, and Frank Churchill had most earnestly lamented her absence. Might not the evening end in a dance? Had been a question of his. The bare possibility of it acted as a farther irritation on her spirits, and her being left in solitary grandeur, even supposing the omission to be intended as a compliment, was but poor comfort. It was the arrival of this very invitation while the Westons were at Hartfield which made their presence so acceptable, for though her first remark on reading it was that, of course it must be declined. She so very soon proceeded to ask them what they advised her to do, that their advice for her going was most prompt and successful. She owned that, considering everything, she was not absolutely without inclination for the party. The Coles expressed themselves so properly. There was so much real attention in the manner of it, so much consideration for her father, they would have solicited the honour earlier but had been waiting the arrival of a folding-screen from London which they hoped might keep Mr. Woodhouse from any draught of air, and therefore induce him the more readily to give them the honour of his company. Upon the whole she was very persuadable, and it being briefly settled among themselves how it might be done without neglecting his comfort, how certainly Mrs. Goddard, if not Mrs. Bates, might be depended on for bearing him company. Mr. Woodhouse was to be talked into an acquiescence of his daughter's going out to dinner, on a day now near at hand, and spending the whole evening away from him. As for his going, Emma did not wish him to think it possible. The hours would be too late, and the party too numerous. He was soon pretty well resigned. "'I am not fond of dinner visiting,' said he. "'I never was. No more is Emma. Late hours do not agree with us. I am sorry Mr. and Mrs. Cole should have done it. I think it would be much better if they would come in one afternoon next summer and take their tea with us—take us in their afternoon walk, which they might do, as our hours are so reasonable, and yet get home without being out in the damp of the evening. The dews of a summer evening are what I would not expose anybody to. However, as they are so very desirous to have dear Emma dine with them, and as you will both be there and mr knightley too to take care of her i cannot wish to prevent it provided the weather be what it ought neither damp nor cold nor windy then turning to mrs weston with a look of gentle reproach ah miss taylor if you had not married you would have stayed at home with me well sir cried mr weston as i took miss taylor away It is incumbent on me to supply her place if I can, and I will step to Mrs. Goddard in a moment if you wish it." But the idea of anything to be done in a moment was increasing, not lessening, Mr. Woodhouse's agitation. The ladies knew better how to allay it. Mr. Weston must be quiet, and everything deliberately arranged. With this treatment Mr. Woodhouse was soon composed enough for talking as usual. "'he should be happy to see Mrs. Goddard. "'He had a great regard for Mrs. Goddard, "'and Emma should write a line and invite her. "'James could take the note. "'But first of all, there must be an answer written to Mrs. Cole. "'You will make my excuses, my dear, as civilly as possible. "'You will say that I am quite an invalid, and go nowhere, "'and therefore must decline their obliging invitation, "'beginning with my compliments, of course.' but you will do everything right i need not tell you what is to be done we must remember to let james know that the carriage will be wanted on tuesday i shall have no fears for you with him we have never been there above once since the new approach was made but still i have no doubt that james will take you very safely and when you get there you must tell him at what time you would have him come for you again and you had better name an early hour you will not like staying late "'You will get very tired when tea is over.' "'But you would not wish me to come away "'before I am tired, Papa.' "'Oh, no, my love, but you will soon be tired. "'There will be a great many people talking at once. "'You will not like the noise.' "'But, my dear sir,' cried Mr. Weston, "'if Emma comes away early, it will be breaking up the party.' "'And no great harm if it does,' said Mr. Woodhouse.' The sooner every party breaks up the better. But you do not consider how it may appear to the Coles. Emma's going away directly after tea might be giving offence. They are good natured people, and think little of their own claims, but still they must feel that anybody's hurrying away is no great compliment, and Miss Woodhouse's doing it would be more thought of than any other persons in the room. You would not wish to disappoint and mortify the Coles, I am sure, sir. Friendly, good sort of people as ever lived, and who have been your neighbours these ten years. No. Upon no account in the world, Mr. Weston, I am much obliged to you for reminding me. I should be extremely sorry to be giving them any pain. I know what worthy people they are. Perry tells me that Mr. Cole never touches malt liquor. "'You would not think it to look at him, but he is bilious. "'Mr. Cole is very bilious. "'No, I would not be the means of giving them any pain. "'My dear Emma, we must consider this. "'I am sure, rather than run the risk of hurting Mr. and Mrs. Cole, "'you would stay a little longer than you might wish. "'You will not regard being tired. "'You will be perfectly safe, you know, among your friends.' "'Oh, yes, Papa. "'I have no fears at all for myself.' and I should have no scruples of staying as late as Mrs. Weston, but on your account. I am only afraid of your sitting up for me. I am not afraid of your not being exceedingly comfortable with Mrs. Goddard. She loves Piquette, you know. But when she has gone home, I am afraid you will be sitting up by yourself, instead of going to bed at your usual time. And the idea of that would entirely destroy my comfort. You must promise me not to sit up." He did on the condition of some promises on her side, such as that, if she came home cold, she would be sure to warm herself thoroughly, if hungry, that she would take something to eat, that her own maid should sit up for her, and that Searle and the butler should see that everything were safe in the house, as usual. End of Chapter 7 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty, September 2009